Coming up on Windows Weekly, I, Micah Sargent, am subbing in for Leo Laporte. We've got Richard Campbell and Paul Therott here, and we've got a lot to cover. We kick things off with an AI slash Bing chat, and yes, that is a bit of a pun. First, with Samsung maybe considering replacing Google Search with Bing, could Apple follow after that? What's going to happen to the future of Google Search? Plus, we talk about Bing making its way into SwiftKey and Microsoft Start. It just keeps popping up left and right. Microsoft creating its own AI hardware, Windows 11 updates, and Xbox, plus our tips and picks of the week. Stay tuned for Windows Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Windows Weekly with Micah Sargent in for Leo Laporte, episode 825, recorded Wednesday, April 19th, 2023. You're not a normal human. This episode of Windows Weekly is brought to you by Miro. Miro is your team's visual platform to connect, collaborate, and create together. Tap into a way to map processes, systems, and plans with the whole team and get your first three boards for free to start creating your best work yet at Miro.com slash podcast and by Cisco Meraki. With employees working in different locations, providing a unified work experience seems as easy as herding cats. How do you rein in so many moving parts? Well, with the Meraki Cloud Managed Network. Learn how your organization can make hybrid work work. Visit meraki.cisco.com twit. And by Cashfly. Cashfly is the only CDN built for throughput, delivering rich media content up to 10 times faster than traditional delivery methods and 30% faster than other major CDNs. Learn how you can get your first month free at cashfly.com. It's time for Windows Weekly, the show where we talk all things Windows, Microsoft, and all of the stuff that Windows and Microsoft have to do with. I am your host, Micah Sargent, in for Leo Laporte, and I am joined, as always, by two of the greatest Windows watchers in the world. To my, of all time. Of all time. To my right <laughs> is... I don't know what happened there. Paul Therott of Therott.com. How are you doing, Paul? I am doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. And to my left, um, noted black tea drinker, it's <laughs> Richard Campbell coming to us from a new location this week. Hello, Richard. Where are you calling from? I am in Studio C in Building 25 on the Microsoft campus in Redmond. It's the MVP Summit this week, so I was able to sneak out and borrow a studio for a few hours. Nice. What's I like that front page and Windows Me are prominently featured in the room you're in. It's nice. Yeah. This is yeah. This is one of the small studios. I've done a bunch of things in here over the years, but it has a whole bunch of archaic Microsoft technology back here. Some Windows 2000 Professional, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Enterprise editions of thing. I think there's a there's a Studio 2010 up there. It's yep. awesome. Yeah. What is that to the left of Visual Studio? It's red, uh, red and blue. Yeah, it's like a cube of some kind oh, with a big red button on top of it. I think it's one of the game uh, show buzzers. Oh, now I just really want to press it and I'll spend the rest. Of so the basically, game. Microsoft is a hoarder is what I'm saying. <laughs> this is a hoarding. 
this is a carefully organized hoarding room. There's a HoloLens over there and a R2-D2. Like, there's, there's bits and pieces. There's, there's, <laughs> sure. uh, we're not far from the 16, 17, 18 complex where they put down the big tiles for each product. Yeah. As I think they really keep that up to about 2008. And it's like, that's too many products. We don't have enough tiles. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> kind of, I remember um, Scott Hanselman giving a little tour of the software archives. And yeah, yeah, that was super cool to see that they've got everything down there. Um, The archivists are lovely. They're really great people. And it's a lot of stuff. You know, this campus has got a certain gravity to it, It, especially with the MVP summit. First time in person in three years. So there's a lot of brand new MVPs who've never been here before. And uh, they're just kind of cute. It's like the first day of school. It's exactly. (laughs) So we're all in building 33, which is the conference center. Typically building 33 used to be. Oh, no, you're right. This is the executive, the old executive conference center. That's right. There's an EBC is now built above it. Sorry. So when you said that, I thought it was the old window, the windows building, but that was 37, maybe 35. Uh, I've, uh, I live three hours drive from here. So I've come down to Redmond almost every month for various reasons and, uh, and check in with teams. If you ever wondered why .NET rocks always seems to be on point for the next show, next technology, that kind of thing. They tell me, I'm just not allowed to tell you until it gets released. So I'm able to build shows to help people get ready. Well, it's good that the trust is there. That's nice. Yeah. Well, they left me alone in the studio. I don't know how wise that is. (laughs) Um, once you press the button, we'll find out. I, I, again, I'm just going to be thinking about that button. Anyway, we should probably uh, talk about the things that uh, Paul Thorat has gathered here for the us. Things. In the, show the things. The things. The things. The topics. Um, starting with Microsoft Bing and AI. Samsung might be getting into the mix. What's that about? Yeah. So I, have you, I assume you guys have talked about this on one of the other shows, but... There was a news report this week, I, th- I want to say from Bloomberg, I can't remember, but uh, that Samsung was allegedly considering replacing Google search on their devices with Bing. Mm-hmm. So I had two reactions to that. Uh, one was uh, I thought they couldn't do that <laughs> right, um, uh, because of the licensing agreement. They have to license full Android. Uh, and but the second one was, you know what? We don't actually know what agreement Samsung has with Google. They're the biggest OEM. They could probably do lots of different things that smaller companies can't. You know? Sure. So maybe. And I got to say, I I don't think going with Samsung would be wouldn't move that needle that that much. But you know what would? Uh, Apple doing the same, right? Uh, the Apple deal with Google for search is worth over ten billion dollars a year, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and probably drives a significant amount of traffic to that thing. And if there's any company on this earth that would like to prevent the privacy stealing ways of Google on their devices, I have to think yeah. that that company is Apple. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So this is kind of interesting all around. Um, Apple, of course, doesn't suffer from any of the licensing issues, so that's not a big deal. But uh, Samsung falls. I mean, I have to think Apple's going to be right behind them. Conversations going on now. There's no way there isn't. Yeah. You know? Those companies are always in contact at some level, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's just a talk in that space. I mean, always the question is, how's the search? Exactly. (laughs) Well, well, let's not go there yet. (laughs) But (laughs) but, I mean, there's uh, there are little things in the news from time to time that suggest this some of this monopoly stuff is going to fall, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Apple or Google? Hello, yeah, Google is now, I think, 
uh, talking to the UK about lowering their licensing fees through the app store and allowing third-party stores or third-party, I'm sorry, third-party payment systems on Android. Um, This is how the dominoes start to fall, right? Because all of these kind of belligerent monopolistic practices that these two companies have, Google and Apple in this case on mobile, um, are almost certainly going to be found to be anti-competitive and illegal in various jurisdictions. So, I'd be interested uh, in we'll when Samsung's due to renegotiate contracts with Google because this is good positioning for negotiating a new agreement with Google. Yep. Yeah, like, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. yeah, I heard you were um, having some kind of a red alert thing or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, we were thinking about paying less for the same thing. How does that sound? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, no, sure. I think that, that, that might be the positioning piece, but... It's also, also you know, the thing is it serves Google. They are under attack to some degree about their monopolistic practices. So anytime you can point to a competitor is competing, you kind of undermine that message. Right, right. Uh, the other thing, too, is this is Samsung. And so it's been kind of quiet on this front lately. But for years, I've been kind of making the argument that Samsung had set out to replace as much of Google as they could on their devices. And... Uh, Anyone who wants to look, whatever you think of Samsung, there are a lot of du- uh, duplicate apps and services on their devices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I at some point there will be a Samsung Maps, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I mean, you know, at some point they just basically try to replace Google everywhere. That's kind of their model. Um, maybe this is a step in that direction too. Android Authority has a write-up uh, talking about what you were suggesting. Yeah, no, I, but um, we, nobody knows what Samsung. Exactly. My point is. Yeah, this is we we all know this. <laughs> my my point is Samsung is probably bigger than all of the OEMs combined outside of China anyway. And I think they have a different kind of leverage over Google than other companies. Um so this is yeah, this is the private deal. If you know Bob's computer company or whatever wants to license Android, uh they have to sign this agreement for sure. But Samsung is in a slightly different sphere here. So uh I guess my point is simply we don't actually know what deals that Samsung and Google have. Uh, that are separate from this. So it's possible they have different capabilities. And how much of this is just posturing versus an actual attempt to change anything? Right. I've tried so many different search engines and I always end up back at Google. Yeah, me too. No matter like, and I know Leo's big on, I think it's like, I can't remember now what it's called. Yeah, it begins with an N. It's like a, it's a paid search service. You you probably have DuckDuckGo, um, Brave search, uh, obviously Bing, uh, black women, that was a thing. Um, you know, the, the, those, there, there are, I'm sure there are many, yeah, uh, but and- most people have that same reaction. It, it, and part of it might not literally be, I'm doing a side-by-side comparison and I like what I see on Google. I don't like what I see over here. So a part of it, I think is this familiarity. Absolutely. Feel, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's that the way that I expect mm-hmm. a search to be returned because I've used Google for so long, obviously like when you um, provide it. A lot of movies and TV shows will have uh, someone go to a Google-like search page on the internet, it's like search.com <laughs> yep. or something. And it doesn't quite look like Google, but it's sort of like those other search services are often like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so this is what is this is like a search service from like a Van Damme movie or something? Like yeah. That. You know, <laughs> every search is just, you know, ipsum lorem, <laughs> you know, all the results. Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't know. I mean, but I then it makes me wonder if yeah. Samsung were to do this. Are people going to be 
the average person, are they even going to be aware that their search engine has changed? Will they know that they can go in and switch search engines or will it just be, I mean, that kind of seems to be the, what's most valuable to Google is you just have this default and people tend, you know, the, the average person tends not to change from that default. Yeah. So I guess it depends on what, what is the search interface like on these phones? So the, the deal with Apple, if I understand it, is the search is inside of uh, Safari, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a standalone search thing. Right. On Android, there's a search box on the home screen. Or there's many times that Google has one. So obviously you type a search query in there, it loads Chrome and it has probably a Google Discover type interface and you get search results, whatever. So it's this thing that's kind of familiar. Um, I don't know. I don't have a Samsung device in front of me, but I, I wonder if Samsung does the same thing or if it's slightly different or how, you know, how they surface this. I know surf uh, Amazon rather Amazon. Jesus. I know that Samsung has uh, their own uh, web browser that no one probably uses, mm-hmm. but whatever right. it's there. Um, I, they have their own widgets and things for, you know, their home, they have their own UI and, and uh, you know, whatever you want to call that stuff. So I don't know how they surface search results, but um, the more they change it, the less you would be likely to notice. Um, you know, if the UI remains the same, if it's some Samsung specific thing, you might not even realize it happened other than the fact that the search results would be terrible. <laughs> but, but I mean, as far as, you know, as I, I think UI is a big part of it. Uh, I, I agree. So, yes, it's, it is the familiarity of the UI that seems to be the bigger. And so you wouldn't necessarily, the Android Authority article has a photo at the top of a Samsung phone. Oh. And yeah, on that main screen, oh, yeah. you can see There's the search bar and it says yeah. search with Google. Um, so I guess it would say search with Bing. But if they just, here's my advice. Search. Don't, search. yes, just say search. <laughs> Don't say with Bing. Yeah. It has this, this there, taste there's, to it. I, again, I don't use a Samsung device. My wife has a year-old Samsung device. Um, every time I look at it, I get frustrated. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean that honestly. But there, there's some interesting cross-licensing stuff going on, even in this very screen, right? So uh, they're using the Google Messages app, which is a fairly new development. Samsung used to have their own Messages app. I believe they're using their own phone app, even though Google has their own app for that. Right, obviously Chrome and Google Search are the defaults. Uh, Samsung has their own camera app. They're using OneDrive, and they have that right on the uh, top. They, I guess they use that for backup or whatever. Photo backup, probably, whatever. But they have Play Store and Galaxy Store. On the home. I mean, this is, uh, in a, it's a very clean-looking design, but even in the small screen, you can see the weirdness of Samsung. It's like a bunch of different uh, thing places to get stuff. Um, it's kind of the Samsung. They've always had their own UI look, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't mind the UI. I don't mind the look, honestly. I think it looks pretty good. The one yeah. UI or whatever. Um, it's the duplication stuff I don't really like. You know, the why are there two calculator apps? Why are there two calendar apps? Why are there two? You know, it's this kind of goes on and on and on. Like um, they have to include the Google stuff because that's part of the, their licensing argument, I guess. And they also feel the need to make another one that has their own name on it for some reason. Yeah. And it'd be, I'd be interested to know the users on that. Like, I generally like a bare metal Android device, right? Yeah. Give me a mm-hmm. I know what I'm getting. Right. Yeah. Same. Yes. I mean, th- that's, I've got the pixel and that is yeah. specifically for just having Android as pure as it can be. And anytime I've used a different uh, Android device, I'm always going, what is all this feels stuff weird. on top? Why is, why is there gunk on the lens? <laughs> it's, it, yeah. it feels like you know, I'm just not getting Google to Google experience in general, right? Like, 
At least well, you're used to looking past Google ads in a Google search. Well, that's true. That's right. Sort of <laughs> yeah, we were trying. <laughs> um, I will say, I, I we can't blame the third parties, the hardware makers, for these problems, right? This is part of the Google licensing requirement. Maybe this is part of something that falls down and is related to this possibility of Bing being being on Samsung. But um, the re, you know these companies want to make devices that uh, have their own branding and and whatever they, they're trying to sell their own product, but they also have to license Android, and to do that, you get these requirements from Google, and you know, there you go. It's it's like when Windows 95 came out and uh, all the PC makers wanted to put Netscape on the desktop and Microsoft said no. And we have our own browser now and blah, blah, blah. It kind of went back and forth. And it's it, it, this is the same kind of battle. Um, right. You know, they don't uh, Google doesn't want you to put Firefox or some other browser on there. And they certainly don't want you not to have Chrome regardless. Mm-hmm. Right. So Chrome becomes a, a you know a requirement. And they built they Actually, they really do what Microsoft did back in the day because a lot of these kind of uh, secondary and tertiary screens you see are actually run by Chrome, even though you don't realize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like that Google discovery feed is, is just a front end of Chrome. Yeah, I think we see more search boxes around that just have no attachment to a browser anymore, or at least you can't see it. So you don't know what it's searching on. It just happens. That's right. In the end, it'll all be chatbots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You just be talking to yourself, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, on the iOS side, it's interesting how Apple has slowly attempted to circumvent sometimes uh, Google whenever you if you use the spotlight search the basic mm-hmm. built-in search um, they will in the case of typing in a celebrity name or certain mm-hmm. uh, plants and those kinds of things it, it will go as direct as possible so IMDB is essentially what it looks for or it will have yeah. sort of a little database of information instead of uh, providing that option to search via Google or you know open yeah. your your browser and look I mean, it there this isn't the the topic per se, but I, I feel like this is the natural extension of it because like I said, Apple is the the most obvious candidate to do something like this. There were stories that Apple was looking at being a few years ago, mm-hmm. actually. Um, when you think about Apple's stance on privacy and all the marketing they do around that and everything you do on the iPhone stays on the iPhone, the one big gaping hole in that strategy is that they use Google search as the default for search. And they do that because that's what people want. That's what they expect. I mean, they have to. They're forced to. But uh, Google or uh, Apple strategy, just like Samsung, is to replace as many partners as they can and do everything themselves, right? So there are rumors of Apple maybe working on their own search engine, for example, or whatever. But you know they want to get rid of that, right? That Mm -hmm. they would love for their audience not to want Google because, honestly, it is a hole. It's... It's a real problem when you're saying you're, everything you do is private. It's like then you're sending stuff to Google about those people. Yeah, especially uh, given the search deal that's in place. Yep. So the company right. is making money off of that. And that billions and billions at home. Yeah, that is uh, not necessarily a good look if, if you are claiming in one breath, uh, you know, protection of privacy. Right, right. All right. Um, let's move on to talk about the Bing chatbot uh, coming to yeah. the keyboard, uh, I think both now on iOS and on Android. Yeah. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, I, I know around the world, there were people who are not Microsoft users per se. Uh, they don't use windows maybe. Um, and they're laughing, right? Because they see this Bing button appearing everywhere. It's on the windows taskbar. Now it's an edge, you know, Oh, now it's on your phone too. So keep laughing, guys. It's going to be everywhere. It's coming. It's coming for you. Um, 
the interesting thing about the Bing button on SwiftKey, SwiftKey is the Microsoft owned now virtual keyboard right for Android and iOS. Um, you know, it's one of those things that people like that kind of stuff or not. I, I, to me, these things never work as well as the built-in one for some reason. I'm sure there's an integration issue. This was always a big issue on the iPhone in particular, where sometimes the, the real keyboard would come through, even though we're using a different keyboard, whatever. But, you know, it's customizable, all that kind of stuff. But Microsoft is sticking Bing everywhere they can, and they added it SwiftKey. And I'm sure some people like it, but just as is the case in Edge, as is the case in Windows, a lot of people said, um, yeah, okay, but can I get rid of this, please? You know, I, I don't necessarily want this giant blue button on my stupid, you know, keyboard. Yeah, so, like I have so much room on my phone in the first place. Yeah, and this is the way Microsoft releases software today. You know, there's not a lot. There's no testing uh, in this case. There's no word it's coming. It just arrives. People complain, and then they say, oh, okay, sorry. Well, we'll give you the opportunity to get rid of that. When it should have been obvious from the get-go, that some big percentage of the population that uses this product would not want that there, you know, uh, but that's the world we live in. So here we are. Anyway, you can expect this stupid chat but button to be everywhere. everywhere I think actually, Paul, if you look behind yeah. you, it's just showed up there. It's uh, sort of coming it's, into it's, frame. It's creeping up behind the thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. Yeah. Did, you, did you say you wanted something? <laughs> oh, no. It's the new clipping. <laughs> oh, not yeah. again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Let me lie to you. Yes. Animated hip clips are your friends. Come on. Yeah, you thought Gilbert Gottfried was terrible. Now it's like a pathological liar. You know, it's... it's I, there's got to be a clippy in this room somewhere. <laughs> there's got to be, yeah. Gotta the, be. the clippy costume has got to be within a couple hundred feet of you. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, what what is the... What's... What is the benefit? Is this just Microsoft attempting to make sure that everyone sees its... AI prowess in the end, because of course the chatbot has all of this no, technology. I, Are they just trying to get everybody familiar with it to prepare them for when Copilot is is fully yeah. official? I think they're just capitalizing on the publicity and you know six, relative success that Bing has had in the wake of the Chat GPT integration stuff. So, when's the last time that Microsoft had a PR hit? I know. That no, really. Fun. With yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, it would do what you can. I mean, I yep. don't think it's a good idea, but while you got some momentum here, maybe you'll win a few folks. You, you can't get Bing into the iPhone very easily, so we stuck it in the keyboard. Well, yeah. but, you know, this is a way to get Bing into the iPhone when you think about it because yeah. Apple sees what's happening here, too, and they're like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I can I can assure you Bing would usage cost a lot less. Or, yeah. It's a it's a good play. It, yeah. It's good to turn it off too. Because that'll also tell you more, right? It's, well, how many people said stop wasting my screen space and pushed it away? Right, right. That seems to be the reaction every time they add it anywhere, <laughs> you know, frankly. But um, I would imagine Microsoft Start, most people probably don't know what that is. It's basically the old MSN website. It's just a news aggregation site with terrible sources. Um, <laughs> yeah, they I really do that, seem to pick the worst sources. It's really bad. I, I, and I, you know, I wish I can't even say I feel bad about this per se, but I it bothers me how bad it is every time I check it. Um, I just did it, and it's just like it's like a horror show of uh, sources I would never want to read, or you know. And I just feel like life's too short to spend the rest of my life saying no, 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 no. Yeah, to try to train you know, to, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've done this like you have, like if you use Facebook a lot, Facebook has a news feed. I've spent time mm. saying hide the story. Hide this publication. Hide the mm-hmm. story. 
hide this publication, right? So I've done this for a long time. And I was just looking at it the other day and I thought to myself, okay, what, what does this look like inside of Facebook? And I found the there's actually a page in settings. You can see everything you hid. And it is hundreds. Of, it's like hundreds of items. I've oh spent, goodness. I guess, years doing this. And uh, to what end? I still every day say no, no, no. You know, and uh, there are stories like you could tell the sign of a bad news aggregator is one that picks up stories from like a local TV slash radio station that has a web page that is just republishing like Reuters stories or whatever. So like one day I saw the same story, like some cute kitten story about whatever. I'm like, I don't know why this is news. I don't want to see this. I don't want to see anything from KDTV.com, whatever it was. But I saw that story again 11 times just from different little local broadcasting uh, companies around the country because they're all picking up the same garbage, you know? If they would just, if, if all of these news apps would talk to Spotify and learn from Spotify, because Spotify actually seems to get that dialing in thing right. Um, I Just to yeah. sort of double down, uh, Apple News is the same way. I can, no, I don't want to hear about this topic anymore. No, I don't like, no, I tried to give it the time, right. hoping that it right. would, and it's still all garbage. I, I, I would get, I listen, if there's anyone out there who has a high quality newsfeed of some kind, please let me know. I, in the morning, I go through a series, I read a couple of newspapers, I read Google News for technology news, and I do a couple of other feed things. But in Google News, I'm literally in their technology section, and every single day, I report something to them, and I say, this is not a technology story. <laughs> and I'm talking, it would be a story about animal husbandry was one the other day. <laughs> it was a story, no, I mean, it's it's crazy, wow. like, it's it, it's... It's not even close. You know, there was like a women's issue type story. It's just mis, you know, it's mistagged or something, yeah. but it's, you know, but I always have the same reaction to this, which is otherwise, you know, other than my innate anger at the world is <laughs> if this is, this is the simplest thing in the world, right? When it comes down to it, of all the functions that Google serves, filtering stories by topic is easy, right? This is not anything, but if this company can't do this accurately, why on earth would I trust their AI? You know, you can't do this. Then how is this much more sophisticated thing going to work? You know, which I think should be the normal reaction to anyone using these products. But uh, this, which is why we have sort of our reaction to Bing, um, because we've used it. <laughs> and uh, yes, we're a little worried about, you know, whether or not Bing chat, chatbot actually, you know, is something we should rely on. I, yeah. And I do wonder if these things are going to get better because the utilization is increasing. Right. That's. Oh, are you, you know, um, are you, have you turned into the dark side of the planet? Uh, the room starting to do its own thing. So. <laughs> Pretty soon it's just going to be like, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> heard your rant. And now I'll know what to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thought you could hide. Um, well, so in order to power the news yeah. <laughs> generation platform, you might need some hardware to do that. Segway. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So uh, there was a, a really interesting report in the information that Microsoft is working on their own AI hardware for their uh, data centers, right? Which, when you hear that, you're like, right, obviously. Um, I think the recent success they've had with uh, Bing and the understanding that this traffic is only going to explode in it, by the way, it's really expensive. Um, they could save some money if they have uh, AI hardware of their own that they don't have to try to get through NVIDIA, although, by the way, they have a huge uh, partnership with them for that. Um, and I think it's notable that all of their major competitors, companies like Google and Amazon, 
have been creating their own AI chipsets actually for years in most cases, right? So um, I think this is them. I think I think the story here is going to be eventually we're going to find out that someone up high up at Microsoft sent out a Bill Gates type memo one day and said, we are really behind on this. We have to move quick. Like we are, we're going to be lost here if we don't do something. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's an AI, all the things letter out there somewhere. I just That's don't right. know what it is. Yep. I would say the energy around large language model technologies here at the summit has been incredibly high. Folks are very interested. There's lots of conversations going on. Um, I'm doing my best not to violate any NDAs here, but I'm <laughs> yep. surprised that that was a huge talking point. And you and I talked about this before, uh, Paul, yep. you replacing this old laptop. And it's like, it's probably worth holding off for another generation because I think we're going to see dedicated compute units for a lot of this new software yep. uh, imminently, really. And this story clearly points to this work's been going on for some time. That's and right. It's be a question of when they can commit and- producing enough of them to put them in a machine. Yeah, we know that Microsoft has worked with all of their um, chipset, you know, microprocessor partners, right? AMD, Intel, and Qualcomm to get that stuff going on the client. We know that the it's essentially Qualcomm-based Surface Pro 9 and also their Project Voltaire, um, the Windows DevBox, I think it's called, uh, which is a Qualcomm-based machine as well. Both have NPUs. And when Microsoft came out with this Mac mini looking thing last fall and said, here, look at this thing. It's based on ARM. It has an MPU. You can get going on your AI workloads. I think most of us looked at each other and said, what are, what are you talking about? AI workloads, you know, and, and to date the types of things that take advantage of this capability in windows are fairly minor, right? Like the Windows yeah. studio effects type things. We're talking about using AI to blur the background, right? Which is a feature of all, video conferencing software, but I guess works better when it's backed with hardware or something. It's probably more effective. Um, there's a bunch of those effects, but very few people in the Windows space have a an ARM-based PC. So right now we're not talking about a lot of people, but like, yeah, like Richard said, you know, he's using Surface Pro 2, sorry, Surface Book 2, mm-hmm. and uh, I think 8th gen Intel. So we're, you know, getting there five, five years on, whatever, six years almost. Um, yeah, it's time. And, uh, I don't know. You might want to wait, you know, we'll see what happens because like look in the fall, possibly next spring. Yep. Uh, we should get some interesting hardware and, and, uh, and get on board with that. Plus the, the looking at the nature of the products that are coming, it'll be interesting to see how they build an emulator so that they can run the same way on the machine, whether you have it or not, it just runs faster when, when you've got, yes. Um, Oh boy. What was the demo? I just saw that was similar to this. I can't remember if it was an Adobe thing or I just saw a demo where they, they, they're, they're starting to use AI. Well, for everything, right. I don't know if you guys have discussed this out in the world, but AI is kind of a thing right now. So companies, yeah. So companies like Adobe are are using AI more and more to apply certain effects to video and, and still images and so forth. And, there was I can't, I can't remember the exact demo, but I just saw a demo that based it was it's sort of like when you do software versus hardware rendering or graphics. You know, mm-hmm. here's what it looks like: where hardware accelerated graphics very fast, and then in the software version, you can see it draw each line, and it was sort of like that. And I think that's going to be the deal, and that's part of the conversation we had earlier on the show around this notion that Windows 12 is going to be the AI release, and that I I, w- I wondered out loud, and I sort of just blurted it out, but I sort of said I wonder if Windows 12 is going to require an NPU because of all these things, it's far more likely that there will be some things that do require an NPU. So you just don't get those if you don't have it. And then some things will just right. be much slower. 
which is what you're talking about. You know, this, you don't have a special processor to run this stuff against, so it will probably go against the GPU or in some cases the CPU. And it yeah. will run, you know, four to ten X slower or something. And, and and like a video game, you'll turn down the resolution mode. Like I could imagine that green screen effect. Mm-hmm. They'll do the comparison. It's like here's without the end. Yeah, there you go. Here's with. And you can see that it just looks more natural when we use with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where we're going. So, yeah, you're going to see uh, in the PC space in general, um, a lot of. Well, it's, it's just going to be part of the chipset. It's just going to arrive. Just like um, Intel integrated graphics at some point actually became pretty good. You know, uh, MPU will just be part of each of these systems. It's just the way it's going to be. Okay. Well, I think we can uh, move on to talk about, and I was curious about this, um, yeah. how much AI how much new AI announcements we would see, how many new AI announcements would we see at build uh, versus what we would see ahead of time as Microsoft and many other companies are going, look, we're doing it too. Here's how we're doing it. Here's what we're doing. Um, So you have a a report here about more. This is uh, Microsoft uh, and Richard will know, uh, will smooth this too. I mean, they have an interesting history of, uh, we have a big developer show coming up in two weeks. Here's a developer announcement. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> they'll actually announce things before the show. And it's like, guys, yeah. what are you doing? You have this, but, but the reason they're doing that is, well, A, they, they want to hit on the cycle, right? This is a popular thing right now. But also, I think build is going to be jam packed with, uh, with AI announcements in particular, but also just announcements in general. So uh, they released that session list a week or two ago. I think we, I'm sure we talked about that. There's a lot of AI stuff in there, but I think the bigger news, so to speak, is going to be during the keynotes. Um, we know Kevin Scott, who's never done a, a keynote at a major show like this, yeah. is going to be doing an AI keynote in particular, uh, this Microsoft CTO, I should say. Um, I think that's going to be one to watch. <laughs> you know, if you're interested in this stuff, um, you know, build is just about a month away, right? So, yep. um, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Sam Altman walks on stage at some point. Like, yes, why would me? Yep, of course. You know, it's, he's not announced or anything, but it's just like you do the math and say, "Look what we're talking about here." Mm-hmm. Why would he appear? Hey, we didn't give you eleven billion dollars not to appear on stage, buddy. <laughs> Get out here. You know, yeah, of course he's got. Yeah, absolutely, of course, to a standing ovation, no doubt. Yeah. But you found the sessions that I found where they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty point blank about bring Copilot to your company. I, I expect it's yeah. going to be very much a M365 experience that you're going to, that you're, it's because you're in the Microsoft graph and your resources are there right. that um, these tools will be able to tokenize elements of your data so that they can be identified and, call, and, and uh, uh, correlated quickly for uh, a chatbot to work on. It's just, a, to me, it feels more and more like this is a new UX, just another way to interface with your data. But yes. perhaps to do the thing you've always really struggled with, which is find out, you know, has somebody already made this report? Who else is working on these kinds of documents? Microsoft's made a bunch of attempts in this area. Like they, they made a product at one point called Delve. It's just that they drop quick, very quickly into that creepiness factor that people get really turned off by it, and then the product goes away. Yeah, Delve was the one that spied on users and said, hey, uh, Bob's been taking a one-hour and 15-minute lunch a couple of days a week. Uh, maybe we should see what's up with that. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, there was some weirdness there. But I, 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 to me, the trick, look, Microsoft will have this stuff. It will be part of Microsoft 365. We all know this. We can imagine what Word is going to look like and how it's going to help you write things, right? So, some of that stuff's easy. 
Um, what I'm most curious about is how they bring this to third parties, right, through Azure. Um, I don't know anything about their existing Azure Open AI service, what these APIs look like, et cetera, et cetera. I, I literally have no idea. But what I have spent a lot of time with in the Microsoft software development space over the years is looking at their kind of UX frameworks, right, and how that stuff has changed over time. And I got to tell you, as impressive as some of the capabilities are in what I'll call like the .NET era, the XAML .NET era, um, I also think, I feel like things have gotten so complex that we've kind of lost the script a little bit on um, what's important and what's not important, like how developers want to spend their time. And um, just a simple, like a simple example, like I want to do something like color a, a title bar in a window, which in VB was the the flipping of a single property without writing any code, the simplest thing in the world. It requires a lot of XAML and C-sharp code, actually C-sharp code in this case, uh, for a modern application. It's, it's silly. Um, you can create modern apps. Style sheets, that's a fun way. Yeah, yeah. But, well, yeah. I mean, there's just a complexity. There's a code kind of density. I think we talked about this a little bit, the verbosity of it. Um, And I I think for this to kind of take off with third parties, I I hope they make it simple. And I know that sounds silly because it's AI and there's nothing simple about AI. But I think the benefit Microsoft can uh, bring to this is to, have all that stuff running on the back end and have simple services that run on top of it that let you access that information. What you're basically doing is plugging in those data sources and saying, Hey, what do you want to know? You know, uh, doing that VB thing where you would create like a, like a beautiful chart or a beautiful, maybe a data grid of back end data that visually shows you what you're looking for, but apply, you know, make that like an AI, an AI type, uh, back end or whatever. I guess it would be an AI service running on top of the back end. So we'll see. I don't, like I said, I don't know anything about it. Really curious to see how they present this. Cause if it's anything like the quantum computing stuff they were talking about a couple of years ago, I, I can't hit my head against the wall enough to tell you how frustratingly difficult or how impossible that was to understand little, you know, no, I, it's quantum computing. If you can't understand it, it's cause you don't understand it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> At least those projects were all MSR. Like they were yeah, not yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to sell you anything. They That's were not. Right with anything you currently bought it was a recent set of research projects they had a huge blunder where they announced that they had found the marjoram uh fermion yeah. they had, they had the breakthrough they hadn't yeah yeah so and they then they had to backtrack on all of that so i this is they are productizing here like this is a oh, yeah. set of products i am concerned about the challenges of using your own data and no you know this kind of fights against that Dunning-Kruger effect. Like all these chatbots are awesome when you know nothing about the subject. When we start actually trying to put machine learning models over top of our own data where we know what the right Mm -hmm. answers are a lot of times and it keeps getting them wrong, that's going to be more problematic. I I mean, I'm very much tuned in this idea of we're on a Gartner hype cycle. We're busy racing up the peak of uh, uh, you know, impossible expectations and the trough of disillusion. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) Once, at least once an episode. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're going to... Yeah. But it's also, why do you go down the trough? It's because companies start getting hurt, right? Or people get hurt. Someone's going to die. Yep. Company's going to miss their numbers because they med- led the wrong way. There's going to be some major lawsuit. Like that's what sends it. Oh, there are already examples of this, uh, making up stories about uh, professors, about how they hmm. are predators. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, there's, mm-hmm. There are crazy examples. Um, so everyone's like, oh, it's just, it's fun. It has to learn from something. What are you going to do? You can't, you're going to give it out to the world. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, guys, 
it's only it's it's fun, yeah, but it stops being fun when people are injured or dying or yeah. whatever. You cost someone. It's learning from the internet because that's a source of truth. Yeah, yeah. We we trained it on Twitter. It's weird. It seems slightly <laughs> psychopathic for some reason. Um, how? Yeah. I don't. I don't know what. How happened. do I find a source of water nearby? Go into your vehicle and open up the gas can. What? No, the answer is I will make you cry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) produce your own water from your. Your mother doesn't love you. (laughs) (laughs) I. All that said, I really, really like the idea of having my own personal co-pilot. And I understand that's not what this is. This is for companies. But the concept of taking the AI and training it on my own personal information, be it the writing that I've done or even uh, text message conversations that I have and using all of that to inform, I mean, anything, you know, know, this is this is literally uh, what the promise of these digital personal assistants was, right? Mm-hmm. That there would be this thing running in the background that would understand your personal schedule, your work schedule, the people you work with and the relationships you had. And it would, it would prompt you from time to time uh, when something happened, kind of like a, like a calendar notification on steroids or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what you're asking for is that capability. I think what we are all asking for really what, what we would like this thing to do is kind of have this thing that does that, but also helps us in every aspect of our life. You know, you write it, you start writing an email and I know there's something built into Gmail that kind of does this, but it says, Hey, um, before you send that, uh, it seems a little aggressive. You want to tone that down a little bit or something, or you, you know, you misspelled some words or here's some mistakes, whatever it is. Um, I think we, we, we want that to be everywhere. You know, um, I, I, I have a hard time getting off of writing, but, you know, you're writing something or you're creating a graphic for something or whatever. And it has this understanding that, hey, I know you're creating this, gra- this, you're putting this image into a PowerPoint presentation for a project. And I know it's about this. And this image has nothing to do with this. How would you, maybe one of these other images would be better. Yeah. You know, would you like me to format that for you? That kind of thing. And you know, it's free and clear from an intellectual property standpoint or whatever it is. Like you, you want it to be clippy, you know, I, well, we are. Yeah. I mean, it's all the same continuum really. Right. Yeah. I also look at it as a phenomenal sales tool for Microsoft products, right? right. If you're on the M365 Copilot and you're now describing your intended work for the day, mm-hmm. you get to pick the apps for you. Like, mm, that's right. That's right. And oh, like, I, so, I mean, this is going back a ways, but back in the day, you know, Microsoft would come out with a new version of Microsoft Office every three years or whatever. And uh, you'd go to some place, they'd have a reviewer's workshop, and they would have some Microsoft guy or woman do a demo of like all the awesome new stuff that was across the product. Of course, Microsoft Office is several applications at the time, um, most of which no one ever uses, right? So it was important that whatever scenario they came up with, you had to step through every single application in the suite to get this project done. And it was always this really convoluted mess uh, to try to arrive at that because that's not how anyone works, right? And the truth is, even if it somehow made sense to use all seven of the apps or whatever it was that were available in the suite, Nobody knows all seven of those apps. You know, most people are good at like one or two of them. And uh, and I think what Richard is describing is how that becomes possible. This nonsense scenario from the past becomes uh, reality because now you don't really necessarily have to be an expert in each of those applications. It will guide you through the parts of them you need to arrive at the other end, whatever the project is you're working on. It's kind of an interesting idea. I mean, overcome, you know, the main thing when every time you look at a new app is, will this app help me? So yeah. the fact that you have an overconfident piece of software saying, this app will help you, sure. you know, you're, you're overdoing that piece right away. It's like, now let me take you down the tutorial. Mm-hmm. 
it actually includes your work in your learning piece as you learn it, it's that's compelling. Yeah. The reality is you own these apps. You're already paying for your E3 or your E5 or whatever account you've got in M365. Just don't know how to use them. So the, that tool could really help. That's, um, yeah. So I, uh, the problem I described earlier when it was just Microsoft Office and a suite of applications has exponentially multiplied with the introduction of Office and then Microsoft 365 because anyone who subscribes to this should probably go to the website and uh, look at all the apps because I bet you don't know half of them even exist. <laughs> you know, um, they've the, all made up icons, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 If somebody worked on the icons, they created them. Uh, they're kind of nice looking, some of them, and you had no idea those apps even existed, but there they are. Um, yeah. I just wonder about the war inside of Microsoft for mm-hmm. who, whose product gets recommended first for what task. That's right. Exactly that, right. That's going to be a good jello fight right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. We need to take a quick break before we round out the being an AI topic. Uh, I want well, to- Actually, we could, we could just round it out. I think oh, we're done. If it's I a just, quick one. We just- yeah, just real quick. Uh, we mentioned Microsoft's bringing a bunch of AI developers. I wanted to say uh, Amazon also announced some developer uh, generative AI tools and technologies, uh, the key one being Bedrock. Uh, there's more actually to that. Um, but everyone's doing it, right? Except Apple. But the, <laughs> Apple, you know, they'll get that. Apple tends to show up for V3 and then they're like, wow, they really kind of hit that one out of the park, didn't they? Those bastards. Um, so they'll get there. I'm sure they'll get there too. To something, at least. Um, All right. Let me tell you about Miro. We're bringing you this episode of Windows Weekly. Uh, If you and your team are still going from tab to tab, from tool to tool, and in the process losing brilliant ideas and important information along the way, Miro can help you with that. Because with Miro... That doesn't happen. Miro is the collaborative visual whiteboard that brings all of your great work together no matter where you are. Whether you're working from home, in a hybrid workspace, or calling in from a studio in the Redmond office, everything comes together in one place online. Creating that one great product needs input from everyone. And that's where Miro comes in with its capabilities to democratize collaboration and input. Miro's infinite collaborative whiteboard gives product teams a perpetual space where they can simply drag and drop insights. They can drag and drop data. Nothing gets lost or forgotten. Miro covers a breadth of use cases so users can build visual assets. They can present their findings and run brainstorms with cross-functional teams. And you can build out your product vision on a Miro board by brainstorming with sticky notes, comments, live reactions, a voting tool, and even a timer so you can make sure that you get to that consensus quickly. And I like, I love this about Miro. It's got a lot of creativity involved. You can express yourself, bring the whole group together around one idea. It could happen with a quick wireframe, drawing with the pen tool, or putting images and mock-ups on the Miro board. Miro users report saving up to 80 hours per user per year by streamlining conversations and cutting down on meetings. No more meetings. Uh, As a result, Miro gives your team the chance to always stay connected to real-time information, and it gives project managers and product leads a bird's-eye view of the whole project to ensure nothing slips through the cracks. Be a part of more than one million users who join Miro every month. Uh, Leo and I use Miro for our show Ask the Tech Guys because it is a great way to have Again, everything in one place. I think 
If you're thinking about this as a whiteboard tool alone, then you're not quite getting the full concept and the full understanding of what it can do because it keeps you from having to switch contexts. And when you don't have to switch contexts as much, then you are holding on to those ideas. You're staying in the flow. And so having, you know, every episode, having all the information that I need, questions that people have asked actually being piped in from email or from Twitter or from wherever it happens to be, uh, as well as my show notes, all of that all together on one uh, whiteboard is so nice. And it's great to not have to switch between tabs and apps and move from here to there. It's all right there. I can get as messy as I need to and clean things up afterwards, categorize, organize. It's fantastic. So I'm serious. Go there. Get your first three boards for free to start working better at Miro.com slash podcast. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash podcast. You don't even need to have a team. Just go there and check it out. Miro.com slash podcast. It's kind of fun to just play around with, even as an individual. So thank you, Miro, for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. And now it's time to head back into the show with Paul Therott and Richard Campbell. And we are now talking about Windows 11. Are we? Oh, yeah, we are. (laughs) (laughs) You bet we are. Yeah, so between today and our previous show, uh, there have been two builds each released to the dev and beta channels, I think. Uh, but certainly today we had two, we had one of each and I, I believe last late last week we had one of each as well, but today's new builds, uh, nothing major, right. Um, but the dev build is adding the ability, I would say re-adding the ability to remove the time and date area from the system tray, which is kind of interesting if you want to get rid of that for some reason. Um, and then speaking of behaviors from the past, uh, they're going to change the hover behavior and search. This is something that was broken uh, after 22H2 came out late last year and they released that search bill update that they never told anybody about. Um, the way that search on Windows 11 worked in the past was that you would mouse over the search icon and you would see a jump list of your previous searches. So you could just click on one of those to get back. Um, that ended with the search pill. It doesn't work with the search bar. They are looking at bringing it back. So there you go. That only took six to nine months, depending on how you measure things. Um, and gestation this, period for a human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in the beta channel, they're adding a feature that was um, previously tested in the dev channel, still in the dev channel, called content adaptive brightness control. And this is just a way to individually control the pixels on the screen based on um, co- what content is there. So you could have a part of the screen that was a certain brightness level and another part that's a different brightness level, which I think is something we already see on mobile. Um, but anyway, a good idea. Um, <laughs> On the backlight being adjustable too, right? Yeah, based on the not yeah, all monitors have that capability. Yeah. Uh, also, it's uh, enabled by the PC maker, so not everyone will see it. So it's probably something you'll see in new PCs, basically uh, going forward, or if they decide to support it in, in existing PCs. Um, and then for you RDC fans out there, you will enjoy this: the first redesign of the remote uh, desktop connection app in. I'm going to say forever. I don't think it's ever changed. Um, if you're familiar with this app, uh, it works if you use Hyper-V, which I'm going to talk about later. You see it there too. But uh, when you go full screen, you get that little trapezoidal shape at the top that gives you like the pin and the different things you can do. Um, they have, because they're really prioritizing what is important and what isn't, um, that will be adopting a Windows 11 look and feel sometime soon. <laughs> so well, the I mean, honestly, get an update to RDP was yep. Windows 11 look and feel. All right. 
it might literally be the only update uh, that has ever occurred to this app. I don't think it's ever, but I could be wrong, but I don't think it's ever been updated. Um, and then late last week, we got two other updates. Um, this one's kind of interesting on a couple of levels, but um, they're adding a, well, they're actually going to call it gallery. It's a view in File Explorer. So if you're looking at a folder full of photos, it will do a gallery view, which doesn't just look like, but is in fact identical to the all photos view in the photos app that's in Windows 11, which is actually kind of nice. You can scroll down, you can go by, uh, we'll show you the years of all the photos and stuff. You can, you can, it makes, makes it easy to kind of get through a big set of photos. Um, but the interesting thing about this to me is not that they're adding it to photo gallery. I mean, this is, or to a file explorer. This is kind of something Microsoft has worked on, on and off since, I don't know, Windows Vista, basically. I mean, there's been stuff like this. Actually, even, I guess even Windows XP technically had something a little bit like this. Um, but rather that functionality that literally clearly came right out of the Photos app is being integrated elsewhere. Um, we just learned that Microsoft Edge got the photo editing functionality from the Photos app. Yeah, I think, in, yeah, actually in the stable shipping version. So if you have one, whatever the version, 111, I think is the current version. Um, you actually have a way to edit images on the web using the exact interface that you use in the Photos app, but built into the Edge application. So it's kind of interesting seeing them bring that functionality elsewhere. So that's kind of cool. And then separately, they're also... Into Windows. Like this is, a, yeah. you know, this used to be Microsoft's whole shtick, right? The embrace, extend, extinguish kind of mindset where you take right. an app and just make it part of Windows. Now they're doing it to their own apps. And they're like, doing it to parts of their apps. Like it's kind of like a component of an app, you know, if you will. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It also simplifies your interface. Like you, you go look for files first and you look for pictures and then you're already got your tools in. Why do you then have to go to an app and navigate to that folder to get to those photos? Yeah, that's actually, that's, I mean, that's always been the central dilemma of photo management, probably on any operating system is do you do it right in the file system, which t to me has always worked out pretty well, or mm. do you do it in a dedicated app? Right. So they're the file system mindset. Well, they've been screwing around with file <laughs> Alex world a lot lately. So obviously with 22H2, uh, they added the tabs. Uh, there's a session at Build where they're going to talk about how they added the Windows app SDK um, to File Explorer, which is kind of interesting because they were using something called XAML Islands to get this kind of modern look and feel in File Explorer, which is a classic, you know, Win32 app really under the covers. Um, what they found was that it was too limited and... Um, they had to contort it for their own needs, which is not something they could provide to the public. So they went with the Windows app to SDK and mark my words. What you're going to discover is they had to contort that to their own needs too. And that whatever they did to File Explorer is not going to be something you're going to be able to do in your own apps. I guarantee, I 100% guarantee it, but I will wait and see. I can't wait, but we'll see. Um, anyway, there's been a lot going on with File Explorer, which is kind of neat because File Explorer, you know, is an app that's based on Explorer.exe. It's been around since... The younger generation, a lot of them don't think about files at all. Yeah. You know, they, they, they don't know where to There was a great set of articles written recently from multiple sources we were talking about. They just don't know where their files are put because that's not a thing. It's not a thing. You, you make can't trust people like this, Richard. These people, yeah. they don't know. You know, this is not, that's not acceptable. You need to know where your files are. Do you? Do you really? <laughs> I think you do. Well, as long as you know they're safe, I guess. What is it? It's yeah. 5 p.m. Do you know where your files are? Yeah. Your files were right where you left them. 
Yeah, yeah I, I, know, I know what you're talking about, Richard. That's the problem. The, the um, professors, uh, specifically, there was a professor of like graphic design or some sort of uh, mm-hmm. art, and they had to teach their students how to install uh, font files because right. the, the concept of a desktop and where you put files and what folder to make things yeah. work was just structure. I mean, and again, these are all metaphors you're created for the limitations of machines at the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. The question is, are those metaphors still relevant? Do we have to know any of this stuff? You know, in a, in, now I'm pulling up the IT hat, right? Like in a zero trust world right. where my identity associates to that file, associates to the resources that are available to me, that is a sufficient. Unless you have my identity, you cannot access those files. You cannot see those files. Sure. And knowing the details of how and where they're stored is kind of irrelevant. So... Right. And and this is, uh, you can apply this to a lot of different things. So back in the day, and actually I'm sure today, a lot of old timers, especially will organize their email into folders, right? And they, they get an email from work and they either use a rule or they just move it over and like, this goes there and this goes there. And they do this because they want to be able to find things, right? And my argument against this now is when you can use search to find anything instantly, maybe it doesn't matter so much, right? Yeah. And I, ha- I will say I have found I use a very specific file uh, structure for, and I use OneDrive. Uh, every once in a while, I can't find something that I'm looking for. And what I found is I don't search in Windows because <laughs> that never works. That's hilarious. You, you but I do want you just <laughs> you can, but but I, my, my, but my time's valuable. So what I do is I go to OneDrive.com <laughs> on the web, and I just I don't have to go into a folder. I just search for the thing, uh, any part of it, and it finds it instantly. I mean, every single time. Um, so yeah, that's-, that's interesting what you're saying, Paul, because we had a, someone call in on ask the tech guys and was saying, mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to speed up my search. Every time I try to search for something, uh, on, uh, windows, on it takes yeah. forever to find what I'm looking for. I've got, they had like yeah. two OneDrive drives, I guess, and they just right. couldn't get anything. So you actually don't use the built-in. No, I, there is, there's a lot, so there's a lot of back and forth on this, right? I'm sure what you guys looked at was like the indexing options dialog yep. that still exists in windows, which is kind of crazy. Um, and you can go in and you can kind of screw around with that. You can say like, what, what is this thing going to index? You know, yada, yada, yada. Um, technically everything, if you're using OneDrive and, uh, you know, to, for your files, I mean, and, and, it's inside your user profile unless you moved it. Um, it that's indexed. Like it should, it should find that stuff very quickly. Um, my experience <laughs> is that that's not how that works. So if it's super important, I just need to get going. Um, I, I just use the, the web search always works. Always works. Someone is saying use everything to search quickly for files on Windows. Is everything an app? Is everything a, a no, search? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what everything is. Um, they yeah okay anyway sorry that that was not no it's okay. <laughs> no back back in the day you know this was a key thing they were going to solve in Longhorn right and one of the embarrassing things that came out during that era was Apple saw that Microsoft was struggling to release Longhorn and they said how much of this can we do quick and there's a there's an amazing probably couple of but one I can remember in particular of keynotes for Apple events where they uh, added. Uh, what Sherlock it was probably called at the time, but whatever desktop search to Tiger, I think it was. And it was instant. And the interface was very reminiscent of what they had in iTunes. In fact, they, um, they compared it to that. They said, we already created this great indexing, you know, technology for iTunes. So we're going to use it in the, in the finder, you know, and they just made Microsoft look stupid. And the hilarious thing is that when windows Vista finally shipped, that's not hilarious. It's sad really, but is that, 
we never had this thing we promised everybody. It all got instant cool. desktop search. It all got, you know, it all went fight because, you know, WinFS never happened and yeah. all these ideas they had for the file all system. All that code ended up in other places, but they the things they were proposing in 2003 never came to pass. No. And so that's always been kind of an Achilles heel on the Windows side. I mean, I interestingly, it might have been 22H2. They they were just talking about this again, They Microsoft, uh, about making desktop search more instantaneous. But I that's, I don't know, not to me, it's never been great. I did want to uh, follow up. It's a search tool from voidtools.com. Okay. And there's there are rave reviews in the chat room about using everything to search on Microsoft, uh, or excuse me, on Windows uh, yeah. via the oh, desktop. Interesting. Okay. Um, all right. Let us move right along here to yes. our next topic. Yes. As we mentioned Surface earlier, um, there are rumors now from credible sources who say that Microsoft is looking at making a smaller version of the Surface Pro because it's not small enough and a an ARM version of Surface Go because that wasn't underpowered enough. So there's some two good decisions right there. Um, I, I don't... Uh, here's my frustration with Surface because I actually... Uh, maybe I'm an outlier here. I really like Surface PCs for the most part. I think Surface Laptop, I know it's a kind of a uh, MacBook Air knockoff. Or I think it's beautiful. I think it's a great laptop. Um, Surface Book, back, I have two Surface Books I can see from here. I really always really like Surface Book, although I never used it as a clipboard. You know, you take it apart kind of thing. I never really needed that. I liked it as a nice laptop. Um, I don't have a Surface Laptop uh, Studio but I suspect I would love it, <laughs> you know, and maybe the a future one of those is maybe that's what Richard ends up with. I guess we'll see. Um, but these, these computers are not particularly popular for reasons that I don't quite understand. Um, it seems like the only thing they've made that's ever sold well, relatively speaking, is that Surface Pro design, which I know is the original Surface, but really what we're looking at is the thing that debuted with Surface Pro 3 when they went to the 3 by 2 screen. Um, it, it seems like they just hit on this nice form factor. And they're like a, it's like a pop band that can't keep re-releasing the same song over and over again. Like all of their music sounds exactly the same. Versions of it now. Yeah, yeah. It's a little strange because there have been, in addition to the Surface Pro line itself, um, there was you know the Surface Go, there was Surface Three, there was Surface. Remember we had Surface Pro and Surface, right? Surface Two, Surface Three. Um, I, I, I just feel like. I mean, do we have enough tablets, guys? Could I mean, really? <laughs> like how many? It's and they're really weird. laptops. It's just a question of yeah. how, what kind of keyboard you get. What's the overall form factor? But sure, right, the pros the hit, right? They 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 made ten versions of the thing. That's crazy. I I just I I, I appreciate. It's probably frustrating for them. Um, they did invite invent. Well, invent's a strong word, but they formalized a form factor. Let's call it that. Uh, everyone else has copied, right? They uh, once the Surface Pro came out in Surface Pro yeah. three form anyway. Um, there, everyone has one now. Uh, meeting like Lenovo, Dell, HP, et cetera. Like everyone makes something like that. Um, for those other companies, those are not the successful products, right? Those companies all make really successful laptops. Well, I don't know how successful any of these machines are for Microsoft. I've always looked at them as reference machines. Yeah. yeah. They're setting the bar so that the, the other vendors can live underneath it, which is also why they're expensive right. for what you get. You can get a better deal for a comparable performance machine yeah. from a Dell or a Lenovo um, and, and spend less. No, it's true. 
It's true. I, 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 I listen, I, it's not the Microsoft logo. There's something about these computers that I really dislike. It, and it's, it's, it's awkward because if somebody who was non-technical came to me and said, Hey, I want to buy a new computer. I would never recommend a surface ever. I just can't, I, I don't, I wouldn't want anything to happen. I just can't know. I don't know that I can trust this company. Now, you you have some scar tissue there. Yeah. Have bad yeah. Use. But you can't say that of any of the recent ones. No, that's the thing. And that's, that's right. That's a good point. So th- there was a real low point with uh, Surface, you know, Surface Pro 4 and Surface Book mm-hmm. 1, uh, where, where everything went kind of south from a quality and reliability perspective. And, and that and was it is kind of, it's calmed down. Hardware, yeah. like yeah. it was their fault. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely, 100%. Um, and that has really calmed down in recent years. So mm-hmm. um, They've learned to make PCs for better or worse. Like Panos' team has got it figured out now. Yeah. I think the studios are a unique machine. They're not for everybody. Right. But again, if you look at it as the reference machine, they set high bars in places. They don't, and they don't promote it in a way that's like, like Apple sets a high bar too, but they promote that high bar to their consumer. I don't, I think Microsoft doesn't even try and promote this at the consumer level for the most part. Right. I see them as they're popular in corporate spaces. Right. Like I've known plenty of, of uh, yeah. IT folk, you know, that, that are run as listeners where, yeah, all, all of their portable workstations that they provide right. are Surface Pros. I wonder if there's some licensing ease here, you know, that there, we're already on SA or something and, and it's, just, you know, we're, we're licensing this and this and this and we get, it may, you know, they make it easy. You have a single source for this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, we've come a long way from the dancing schoolgirls with the clicky tablets. Remember from the first, yes. second generation, whatever that was. Yeah, when they were showing off yeah. the key- keyboard. Yeah, were, yeah. The few times that you've ever seen Apple make fun of a Microsoft technology, the way Microsoft often made fun of Apple technology, <laughs> it backfired yeah. in their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's like combining it. What was it? A, a refrigerator and a toaster. Yeah, that was the combination. And it's like it looks like. People like to dance with a refrigerator toaster. Okay. Sure. Well, to which I replied, you know, people do like to combine some things like a, a microwave and an oven is pretty, pretty good. popular. I, <laughs> I don't know, like a toaster in an oven. I mean, whatever. Yeah, I really like my um, blender air fryer. That's nice. A good mix. Uh, all right. Let's take a quick break before we come it's back. Wet and dry. <laughs> it's both wet. It's, it's odd. It's weird. I can, <laughs> I can make a fried smoothie. Um, I want to tell you about Cisco Meraki, who are bringing you this episode of Windows Weekly. Cisco Meraki are the experts in cloud-based networking for hybrid work. Whether your employees are working at home, at a cabin in the mountains, or on a lounge chair at the beach with their Surface laptop, a cloud-managed network provides the same exceptional work experience no matter where they are. If you thought hybrid work was going someplace, you would be thinking wrong. It's here to stay. Hybrid work works best in the cloud and has its perks for both employees and for leaders. Workers can move faster. They can deliver better results. And with a cloud-managed network, it all works seamlessly. While leaders can automate distributed operations, build more sustainable workspaces, and proactively protect the network. There was an IDG Market Pulse research report conducted for Meraki, and it highlighted some of the top-tier opportunities in supporting hybrid work. First of all, hybrid work is a priority for 78 
90% of C-suite executives. Leaders want to drive collaboration forward while staying on top of boosting productivity and security. Hybrid work also has its challenges. The IDG report raises the red flag about security, noting that 48% of leaders report cybersecurity threats as a primary obstacle to improving workforce experiences. Always-on security monitoring is part of what makes the cloud-managed network so awesome. IT can also use apps from Meraki's vast ecosystem of partners. These are turnkey solutions built to work seamlessly with the Meraki cloud platform for asset tracking, location analytics, and more, to gather insights on how people use their workspaces, to reserve workspaces, and also for mobile device management, or MDM. This is integrating devices and systems, which allows the IT to manage, to update, and to troubleshoot company-owned devices even when the device and employee are in a remote location. So you can turn any space into a place of productivity and empower your organization with the same exceptional experience, no matter where they work, with Meraki and the Cisco suite of technology. Learn how your organization can make hybrid work work. Visit meraki.cisco.com slash twit. And we thank Cisco Meraki for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. All right, we are back to the show with Paul Therott and Richard Campbell, and it's time to head into Xbox Corner. That'd be a fun little podcast. Um, (laughs) So we're past the middle of the month, so we're kind of overdue for news on what's coming to Xbox Game Pass over the second half of the month. But Microsoft came through, I think, just today, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Bunch of stuff. Two of these stand out for me. Minecraft Legends uh, just came out today. Is that correct? No, yesterday. So I've actually been, pl- I've been playing that a bit. Um, that's actually a pretty good game. So kind of a an action adventure game in the Minecraft space, if that makes sense. You know, if you're familiar with Minecraft, you know, you create your own little world and bad things happen and you kind of uh, have to deal with that stuff. And it's it's basically just enemies take over the world and you have to go fight them and stuff. It's It's, it's pretty good. Um, and then of course, uh, Redfall, uh, which unfortunately will only run at 30 frames per second on your Xbox series X when it first arrives, but it eventually will hit 60 frames per second, like a big boy game. But anyway, that's coming, um, among the, uh, gaming streaming services I did not know existed. There was something called Ubisoft plus. So Ubisoft makes the Assassin's Creed games. They make the Far Cry games, um, this thing is on PC, I think is... I am so mad, Paul Therott. Okay, what happened? I have been subscribed to Ubisoft Plus for quite some time because I play okay. um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla on um, okay. Amazon's Luna, its cloud streaming system. Then my partner oh, got a... a second. Why do you oh. have to subscribe to Ubisoft Plus, though? Why, why, it wouldn't make, make sense just to buy the one game? No, so with Amazon Luna, actually, that mm-hmm. probably... I, I think I may have been able to do that, but I was able to play a bunch of different Ubisoft games. So I wanted no, I to. Um, okay. And what I ended up doing was I just stuck with uh, Valhalla. So yeah. then um, the, the problem with it was that I had to constantly have a, a Ethernet. It, it just even with the, the fast Wi-Fi that I had and with an iPhone that had fast. How are you? You were playing. How were you playing the? Where were you playing the game on? On an iPad that, or on a Mac. An iPad. I could. I could do. Are you using a Luna controller? Yeah, and you use an Amazon Luna controller. Okay. So that was great, yep. right? Well, then uh, my partner ended up getting a PlayStation Five, That's and. Right, yeah. 
I wanted to play it of on the course. PlayStation 5. And you had to start over. And I had to buy the game for the uh, PlayStation 5. Oh, because, right, it wasn't available. Because it's it still not available on Sony. That's right. Correct. And yeah, so this is new to Xbox. So, so if it's going to Xbox, I wonder if it'll eventually... Well, actually, you would know. How much do you pay for this thing every month, the version you're using? Is it 9 or 15 uh, $15. It's $15 yeah. a month. So it's expensive for this kind of it's thing. It's very expensive. Um, because it's just one company's games, right? I mean, I would say those two franchises are the big ones. Uh, they have a few others, but that's that's the big stuff. Um, and it's back stacked too. Like Far Cry Six is visually impressive, but a stupid game. Far yeah, Cry, I, Far Cry is phenomenal. Yeah, Far Cry Five was not great. Either. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yep, kind of hit or miss. Well, Assassin's Creed games are like that too. So supposedly the next one's kind of going to go back to the classic original style. But I always do the same thing in Assassin's I did this with Valhalla, unfortunately. I, the previous game, the one that took place in uh, Egypt was like this, whatever that was called, where you get in the game, it's beautiful, and you play the beginning, and then you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I just couldn't I just couldn't get it. You know what I mean? Like, I I like the, I play the beginning, and it's like, yeah, I don't know. I get it, I guess. We're going on a boat now or something? Oh. I don't know. That's, that makes yeah, me sad. It's a really. No, don't, no, no. These things are all very subjective and you have That's terrible fair. taste in games it's fine so <laughs> <laughs> no, just yeah, you're right so I, oh, yeah I so you're like right. shooting so ubisoft, people <laughs> I, I know what you like no no ubisoft plus was previously only available on pc and amazon luna mm-hmm. so there's a new version called ubisoft multi-access which is the premium tier and that's actually maybe that's pre-existing. Maybe multi-access means multi-platform, uh, and so it's adding support for the Xbox, uh, or it did add support for the Xbox. So I looked at this and I was like, ah, jeez. I mean, it's like kind of a tough add-on price, you know, if you're already paying for an Xbox Game Pass subscription or something. It'd be kind of cool to get these games somehow. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, it's Where interesting that, that they're coming. That, to Xbox. that Netflix, Disney, Paramount, like too many subscriptions. Pat. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. At the same time, these companies can't make a living selling a title straight up anymore. Right. Too expensive to make. They need an ongoing revenue model. But this is the battle that Microsoft had over Office a decade ago. And now they've succeeded in pretty much you buy M365 for whatever a month per seat. And the gaming industry is trying to do the same. Yeah. I don't... um, hmm. I did, yeah. I mean, I tried, uh, like, I uh, I think it was Far Cry, Far Cry 5 I played on Stadia, of all things. So I, mm-hmm. I'll, make, I'll make all kinds of good decisions. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. But it, it now, when you look at it in the context of these kinds of, uh, you know, subscription models, Microsoft buying up every game company they lay their hands on does make sense. Right. Because people don't want 15 different subscriptions. Yeah. Actually, that's going to be part of the back of the book because I feel like the offering that Microsoft has uh, which, by the way, is less expensive than this. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense. We'll get to that. Um, but yeah, I just feel like this thing's a little too expensive. But I, I think the one thing about it is um, that was at first, at least, made it worth it. If I had, mm-hmm. if I hadn't put such a pause between when I started playing and then when I picked it up every now and then, yeah. it wouldn't be so expensive. Was that you get like the most premium version of the game, so you get all of the okay. downloaded yeah. pack, you know, yeah. which you end up buying. No, I get it. The time. I get it. But yeah, it, at this that's point, true. I mean, that's true on um, you know Game Pass. If you want to play Fight Simulator, you get the you know you don't get the base version. You get the the, the awesome version. But yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that makes sense. If you're committed to playing it within a period of time, you know, for the next three or four months at most, then it doesn't right. end up adding up as much as if you. 
just keep yeah. it. Yeah. So we don't know what's going to happen on the Sony side, but I would expect this service to come to Sony, right? Yeah. And uh, maybe there's an exclusivity window for Microsoft or something. I have no idea, but I, there's no way this isn't coming to the PlayStation. So it will happen. And then it gets, so did you actually end up buying it on uh-huh. the PlayStation? I bought it flat but, out. So you would have had to, you had to start over then, right? Uh, no, that was, thank God, oh. because if you have oh, okay. an Ubisoft account, then it linked. Oh, there you go. So, that's, oh, great. That's good. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. So it wasn't that's completely cool. a yeah. waste, yeah. but it was, you know, I had to buy it again sure. <laughs> sure. straight out. Okay. I would say that uh, Amazon Luna today is probably the best. Well, well we're going to get to this, but in terms of latency, if you have that controller, it's pretty good. Yeah. And I've, that type of game, that's not quite, it's not, it's a third person game, I know, but it's not quite the rapid action of like a first person shooter. Right. It's probably, it's, it's right in the pocket for what's good for game streaming, I would say. Like high quality graphics, but also good action and stuff. It's probably in the right space for that kind of game, if that makes sense. I agree. Yeah. I, I was impressed with it for that, but I know people who are, you know, hardcore gamers who you do need to have that trigger action happen as immediate as possible, who would be a little upset with it. Yep. Yeah. No, that's, we're going to talk, like, we're going to talk, like I said, about game, uh, well, Game Pass Ultimate, which has game, uh, cloud gaming, which is the streaming service Microsoft have. It's gotten better, but it's a little tough for third person shooters. Let's put it that way. Okay, uh, what else we got here? So in the wake of the debacle that is Halo Infinite, um, I have expected Microsoft to tear Halo away from 343 Industries, which is the game studio that is responsible for this now that Bungie is gone. Um, and that hasn't happened, but a lot of the people in charge or in the higher, uh, the executive part of uh, 343 have been leaving the company, which I don't think is coincidental. And the... Um, Creative head for Halo Infinite uh, left Microsoft to join Netflix Games. He will create a new AAA multi-platform game and original IP. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, I, granted, Netflix is all of a sudden one of the big opportunities in the gaming space, I guess. Um, but I, I think there's, uh, there's been a lot of call for shakeup in the Halo world. So. Maybe that isn't so surprising. I don't mean to dump on this guy. If there's first. one company that has figured out how to stream content to people whose connections can be as bad as, I don't know, somebody spitting peas across the space yeah. to get the data to them, it is Netflix. So I find this, I think this is a cool if they go further than what they've done right now, because right now it's, I think, garbage stuff. But if they make a true yep. streaming gaming system or platform uh, in the future, I, I really so I want that to it. be I want it to be successful really badly. And the reason is I want them to take it out of the stupid Netflix app and put it in its own app so I don't have to see it. Like, <laughs> I mean, they're they're clearly trying to push it on the audience. Right. But it makes sense. Um, but I want I Netflix games should be its own thing. I don't think that has anything to do with video streaming. It's not like my wife and I are sitting there on the couch one night. We're like, do you want to play an interactive game or do you want to just couch potato it and watch a movie or something? You know, like this, this is not the same activity um, for a lot of people. I know maybe it is for some, but. Yeah. And Netflix needs to diversify. Right. Like, yeah, they, yeah. they have. Licensing other people's content to stream on their very good streaming engine. And those other people are now pulling their product, their content back to do their own bad streaming services. <laughs> right. uh, and Netflix has tried to make their own stuff. And some of it's been pretty good and some of it's not been good at all. Yeah. So if they can put the get right team together and crank out any billion dollar hit, like there's only a dozen a year, but if they get, if they can snag one or two of those over the next few years, they've got something. 
If you could make a Call of Duty that was streamed from the very beginning, sure. that was just part of your monthly package, it was never anything else, and it was part of your Netflix account, that will help carry that company. You know, uh, remember that the guys at Valve stopped making Half-Life because they made God, Dota help 2. Us all. Damn those people. But Dota 2 makes so much money. But it's not Half-Life. <laughs> this, this kills never, me so much. I would... Right now, I would give them hundreds of dollars to play a new Half-Life. And they, I am literally, they make this will be, I know. So uh, I haven't written this up yet. I haven't even done it yet. But there's a there's a tip out there in the world now that you can download off of GitHub the files you need to run the Alex game, which is the VR uh, Half-Life mm -hmm. experience without VR at all. It's the whole game. So Half-Life Alex costs 60 bucks, which is crazy to me. But um, you can buy that from uh, Steam, and then you can download these files for free from GitHub, and you can just play the game. And this is what I want to do. I want to play another Half-Life game. I don't understand why back in that these world. guys don't get this. How do you not just have a team of people just working on this? And they found a way to make even more money. Oh, boy. I don't know. Man, that's reality. And it, and it also speaks to the monthly revenue games as opposed to the package games just make more money. And so that's where the talent goes. I hate this world. Okay. <laughs> uh, God, it's so frustrating. It's 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 dangerous for me to love things because they always get Aww. destroyed. Oh, <laughs> oh. yeah. I really like you, by the way. <laughs> oh, great. It's funny. When I'm watching shows, I will sometimes yeah. find myself accidentally saying out loud, oh, I really like that character. And then immediately we'll like, go, no, oh, no, that's then, the worst yeah. character possible. Like sniped, like yeah. Right then, yeah. <laughs> if, if you yeah. if you quickly say, no, you're just, uh, no, I don't like that character, then, they, then they're fine. That's, <laughs> that's my special skill with restaurants. If I ever start liking a restaurant too much, it just drops off the planet. Yeah, it's yeah. Anywho. Okay. So there's that, that guy. And then uh, this doesn't deserve too much time, but let's just say that Microsoft has been frigging around with the Xbox UI since there's been an Xbox and it's never once gotten it right, but it reached ludicrous proportions during the Xbox one timeframe where they kept replacing it, kept replacing it, kept replacing it. Eventually over time, they realized they, there was nothing, despite the fact that this thing was, you know, at the time, a really powerful console. Uh, they basically figured out there's nothing we can do to make this thing faster. So the only thing we can do now is just make it more efficient, meaning we'll take it few, you know, fewer clicks to get to the thing you want to do, which, you know, should have been the UI from the beginning. But um, you get to the Xbox Series X and S today. It's the same, you know, they brought over the same UI, but they've been screwing around with it. And uh, and people just hate, no matter what they do, everyone hates it, you know. So they released a new version of the dashboard and people are like, I can't see my backdrop. And I'm like, you know. This thing should be like the Google search homepage, right? I'm here for, to do one thing. There's a, in this case, I'm typing something into a box. And when I go to, when I turn on my Xbox, I want to see like the last couple of games I played and then have a button for everything else. Cause pretty much that's why I'm there. And uh, I don't know why they don't quite get that, but I guess people, people are going to complain no matter what they do. So whatever the new dashboard is, they just released. Don't worry. They're going to replace it in two weeks. That's how Microsoft works. So. That's happening. Um, and then uh, after this being rumored for a couple of weeks, it finally happened. Um, Sega announced this week that they're going to buy the makers of Angry Bird, which, yes, they hmm. they still wow. make Angry Bird. By the way, this thing still makes millions and millions of dollars a quarter. Um, different oh, versions of Angry Bird. gives you a hint. Like, holy man, that's a lot of money for a game where you chuck birds through the air. Yeah. Well, when that game first came out, uh, it was the most addictive thing that's ever happened on oh. mobile. It was the biggest thing in the world. And uh, one of my 
kind of happiest uh, parenting moments, not that it involved parenting, but just moments as a parent was we were flying home from a trip from Europe with the kids who were little and they had little iPod touches at the time. They were playing Angry Birds and the adults sitting in the row in front of them. I don't know if my son saw they were they were also playing Angry Birds and the four of them colluded together over the seats to show each other how they were doing things. And they were just playing the game together. And I thought this is a, a wonderful moment. That makes no sense, but everyone was super addicted, you know, to this game. Yeah. Uh, that was possibly 10 years ago. I mean, actually, I'm sure it was 10 years ago. Or something yeah, like that. 10 years ago, spending $770 million on that game would have made a lot of sense. Right. Today? Right. Really? Wow. So uh, the latest Angry Bird game, uh, which is I've never heard of, is called Angry Birds Dream Blast, earned $25 million last year. Wow. Um, and it was the second biggest Angry Bird uh, game of the of the year financially, <laughs> right? But most of their games, and I mean like 90% of their games are Angry Birds something, right? Angry Birds 2, right. Angry Birds Dream Blast, Angry Birds Friends, you know, it goes on and on. But uh, yeah, I mean, they've obviously, they're also having that one hit wonder problem. But I, I think the deal here is similar to what Microsoft is trying to achieve with uh, Activision Blizzard, which is... This company, which Sega, which makes games, obviously used to be a major player in the console uh, hardware business, um, is probably doing okay. But they're the, the biggest part of the market is passing them by, right? Mobile, and this is their one of their. Uh, they may acquire other studios. I don't know. We'll see. But um, this is their attempt to get into the mobile game business, in which they have no position right now, basically. So we'll see. I. After the acquisition, can they still make another Angry Birds games that sells? And can they make anything else? Yeah. Romeo never really was able to make anything else. Sure. Well, I think, you know, culturally, a Japanese company and a Finnish company have a lot in common, so that'll be fine. And um, time zones won't be an issue. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I don't know what they do. I don't know. But there you go. Anyway, you can expect antitrust regulators to ignore this particular deal. So don't worry about that. (laughs) Uh, okay we are coming up on the back of the book but i do want to take one more quick break this time to tell you about cashfly who are bringing you this episode of windows weekly customers are not going to hang around for your content to load so don't give them a reason to leave you can dramatically increase your sites and your apps speeds over long distances for global audiences with Cashfly. With more than 3,500 clients in over 80 countries around the world, organizations like Twit consistently use Cashfly for scalability, reliability, and unrivaled performance. Some markets are more challenging than others, and content delivery costs vary drastically. Partner with the CDN that knows what it takes to deliver content fast in global markets and is honest about the costs to get you there. You can scale your content delivery in several emerging markets, including South and Central America. Uh, Also in Australia, where we've seen IP traffic growing year over year by 25% uh, due to a lack of early investment in the region. Many network operators have struggled to cover the entire Australian continent, but Cashfly has several presences there, Melbourne, Perth, and Sydney. So it isn't a problem for Cashfly. India is another 
uh, market where you can count on Cashfly by providing edge-optimized content tailored to the mobile markets and dedicated transfer and caching solutions. Cashfly has your needs covered in the Indian market. Reach your audience anywhere in the world with Cashfly's 50-plus locations across the globe. That will get you lightning-fast gaming. We were just talking about that, which delivers downloads faster with zero lag, glitches, or outages. Ultra low latency video streaming that delivers video to more than a million concurrent users. Mobile content optimization that offers automatic and simple image optimization so your site loads faster on any device. And never pay for service overlap again. You can get flexible month-to-month billing for as long as you need it and discounts for fixed terms once you're happy. Design your own contract when you switch to Cashfly. How, you may ask, do we know all of this and that uh, Cashfly is so great. Well, Twit has been using Cashfly for more than a decade now, and we wouldn't have it any other way. Building trusted CDN relationships since 1999, Cashfly continues to hold the track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. Cashfly is the only CDN built for throughput, delivering rich media content up to 10 times faster than traditional delivery methods and 30% faster than other major CDNs. Learn how you you can get your first month free at cashfly.com. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. Cashfly, thank you so much for sponsoring this week's episode of Windows Weekly. Let's head back into the show with our back of the book tips and picks. Kicking things off with a tip of the week. Richard, let me ask you a question. Yeah, buddy. Do you ever do anything with virtualization? All the time. And, okay, so what do you use for that? Hyper-V. There you go. But I own servers, right? It's trivial. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right, I have a I have a dedicated machine with that's basically a hyper machine hyper V host. Fire them up, pull them down. Don't even think about it. That's not normal. <laughs> I also have a server closet in my house, so sure, also sure. not normal. Okay, so I I recently. I don't remember when, sometime this month, wrote uh, the virtualization section of the Windows 11 field guide. Um, there are two major virtualization solutions in Windows 11 now, uh, Hyper-V, right, which is the, mm-hmm. the, the hardware hypervisor cool. solution, right, that debuted in Windows Server 2003. In fact, one of my earliest, <laughs> my <laughs> one of my funnier stories was Microsoft uh, once uh, shipped a Viridian box to my house um, so that, uh, geez, I just forgot his name. This guy, Italian speaker, book writer guy could use it at a speech in Boston. And then I saw an internal email where someone in the server team said, you just shipped a Viridian box to throw us. So you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like I was going to break into it. Was, Dino Esposito. Thank you. That's who it was. Uh, and my wife was. actually dropped it off and uh, man, she could not stand that guy. But anyway, um, Dino. Dino. So yeah, that's what it was. Thank you. So Esposito. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so Hyper-V is the stand, you know, the, the virtualization solution we've had forever in windows. It debuted in, on the client in windows eight. Right. So it kind of got lost in the mess that was windows eight. I'd never thought they would bring this to the client. Um, but windows 11 has a second uh, thing you can use for this type of thing, sort of called windows sandbox. Hmm. Uh, windows sandbox is based on Hyper-V. It is lightweight. Um, but it's not configurable in any way. And the idea there is that you can fire up a virtual machine based on your PC. So it's always the version of Windows 11 you have. Um, you have the ability to bring in apps from your configuration if you want to do that. 
And the reason it exists is so you can test software that you might think is unsafe, right? Right. Um, and it's not persistent. So you can reboot the virtual machine and it will come back and proceed, uh, persist its state. But if you shut it down or close it in any way, it's gone forever. Like everything you do in there is is lost. So what you do in Windows Sandbox stays in Windows Sandbox. Yeah. I, I know folks who use Windows Sandbox for browsing. There you go. Yeah. That, they're that paranoid. Like yep. that. Yep. The fact that it can never reach the rest of the machine. And those are typically people that have been exploited, like they have clicked on the wrong thing, had their accounts hijacked and so forth. Hmm. Not that being in the sandbox will stop the account from being hijacked if it's there. Right. But it's usually a lateral exploit. And because there's very little in sandbox, there's very little there. Yeah, that's true. There is very little there. Yeah. And, and like the app list is, you know, five or six items long. It's not very yeah. big. So, you know, the question there is like, you know, well, what do you, if you want to do virtualization in Windows 11, like, what do you use? I mean, obviously Hyper-V is, is the solution. The problem with both these things is that they require Windows 11 Pro. Um, right. There are actually workarounds on the web to install Hyper-V on Windows 11 Home, and I've done it. It works fine. Um, there are also workarounds for installing Windows Sandbox and Windows 11 Home, and I've tried that, and I've never gotten it to work. So um, you could get some mileage out of that. Um, there's also a... Uh, a virtualization subsystem in Windows 11 that is used for the Windows subsystem for Linux and for the Windows subsystem for Android, but you don't have to worry about those things too much, right? You just get those, uh, you just install those features and that happens for you. But I got to say, um, I find for, for kind of a client type thing and having used, you know, Parallels desktop on the Mac, I find a Hyper-V to be vaguely unfriendly and not necessarily obvious to use. I use it a lot myself. It is what I use, but I actually think um, for a lot of people, depending on what you're trying to do, uh, Oracle VirtualBox is free. It's something mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting. It supports sound out of the box, which Hyper-V does not, which is kind of yeah. strange to me. Um, well, Hyper-V is a server product. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I know. I know. But it's, uh, you know, it's almost 10 years later from the client. Like, I mean, it, it feels like it hasn't been updated in a while. But it yeah. is getting the Windows 11 look and feel in the uh, RDC cloud. Well, so. better. I'd also <laughs> say that for devs have moved away from using very many virtual machines where it's a container world today. Right, right. And it's just more efficient when you're doing development to have a right. set of containers that are more like what you're going to end up in the production. Yeah, tomorrow. yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, there was a, a you development and you were always running a couple of Hyper-V instances at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I use Hyper-V all the time, but... I don't, but I don't. you're not a normal human. <laughs> I think that's, that might be the proof. Yeah, yep. yeah that's true. Anyway, uh, just so you know, they're there. And if you do have Windows 11 Home, Google this, you can probably get them installed. Okay, so the app pick is a couple, of, well, it's two different things uh, in a way. So uh, also because of the book, and I did this back in March, and then I've actually kind of continued it, is I had to write about the Xbox app, which is part of Windows 11, and the to take full advantage of it, you need an Xbox, well, you need a PC Game Pass or an Xbox Game Pass Ultimate subscription, right? So Microsoft has three of these things. Uh, there's one for Xbox, one for PC, and one for both. And the one for both, Ultimate, also includes the cloud gaming service, which is the game streaming stuff. Uh, this has gotten significantly better over the years uh, since I first tried it. And, well, years, I guess, year, <laughs> year and a half, whatever it's been, year and a half. Um, so... The two standard services are $9.99 a month. The ultimate version is $14.99 per month. I just switched over to it, like I said, last month. I'm actually going to hold on to it. Um, I've been trying to get out of my little Call of Duty rut. And the thing, you know, we were talking about Ubisoft Plus. So it's a little bit less money. Uh, it's a much bigger collection of games. It spans things like uh, Bethesda and um, 
EA Play is in there. Oh, wow. It it spans platforms if you get Ultimate, wow. and it includes the cloud streaming stuff, which is really interesting. And when I go into this thing, I, I it's funny. I've been playing kind of a mix of old and new games. So today, I was playing a little bit of Minecraft Legends. Also was playing Quake and Quake 2, <laughs> right? Uh, which are really old, you know, 90s PC games, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No way they pay $15 a month. There's no chance. What, they, they, they're buying Activision for $69 billion. Yeah. You got to pay that back. You're right. Yeah. Like, I, you know, yeah. the thing to do is buy this now and buy a year. That's right. Because it's going to go up as soon as the Activision titles start to land. Yeah. And actually, one good way to do that, because they make it harder now to buy it in multi month or whatever year. And you know, I don't think they even offer technically a year of mm. Xbox Game Pass, whatever. Um, you, they, they, I'm sure they have three month and sometimes maybe six, but they're not big savings over, you know, yeah. just buying it month to month. Yeah. But what you can do is buy a year of Xbox, uh, gold live, which is often on sale. And then you can churn it. You can say, I'm going to switch this over to game pass, whatever. And they'll apply whatever, you know, to some number of months. And so when mm. I did that, it went out to next February. <laughs> so I was like, nice. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I don't actually have to pay for this thing again. So I, until next February. So it, that worked out pretty well in my case. So if you can find like the little cards or whatever, you know, they used to have or buy the codes online, uh, if you can get those on sale, that's a good way to get into it. Um, the reason I want to do this is because I play too much Call of Duty. So I feel obligated to tell you that Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 multiplayer, not the campaign, but and not Wild Wars, it's always free, but not anything else, is free to play for the for one week on all platforms starting today. So if you're on PlayStation, Xbox, PC, whatever, uh, and you don't own this game and you want to get in and see what it's like, uh, they just launched Season 3, which means there's a couple of new multiplayer maps. Um, there's other modes, I mean, compared to what I play, I play a very specific part of the game, but uh, there's a lot going on in, in Season 3. And um, there's a lot of maps now, because when this thing first launched, you know, last October, I think it was, or November, uh, there were only a handful of multiplayer maps. They added two, I think, in Season 2, but they've added a few more. It's finally to the point kind of where it needs to be. So uh, if you're not sure about this game, it's also on sale. Just saying, you know, you can, <laughs> you can pick it up. This might be the time. It's awesome. Get addicted. I'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that means it's time to talk about this week's Run As Radio. This week on Run As, I talked to one George Finney. So George is a professor and a, a security expert. Uh, he's done a bunch of different books, but he did a new one, which I thought was particularly interesting. It's called uh, Project Zero Trust. And what he's done is written a sort of fictionalized account of a company getting breached and uh, then recovering from that and actually getting to a good secure zero trust model for themselves. It reminds me of the Phoenix Project, which is one of Gene Kim's books about DevOps. And, and really this a sort of effort to stop talking technical about these practices and talk, talking in a more um, narrative model. Uh, that being said, if you're sort of all on board with Zero Trust and just trying to make your way on it, you probably don't need to read this book. You need to give this book to other people. So maybe the rest of your team so they can kind of get in the groove. But more importantly, the leadership, the folks are going to tap for the money and the effort around this. This is a way to, to tackle this problem. So I, I was glad to have him on just to have that discussion about how much organizations are struggling to understand the, the zero trust model and uh, how much of a transformation it is to the way you approach security and kind of essential in a cloud world. All 
right. It should all be zero trust. That should be be everyone's mantra. I think you, Paul, you are, it sounds like, because you, you, uh, you can't trust that you can like a restaurant and have it stick around. (laughs) <laughs> Listen, zero trust I, I, I have too much experience to know otherwise. I'm just <laughs> saying when it comes to technology, zero trust. Don't trust. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's move on to your picker, the picker of the week. Yes, that is a mix. <laughs> that is a portmanteau of liquor and pick the picker of the week. <laughs> Well, and this has sort of evolved into these whiskey stories. You know, when I first got uh, an opportunity to do the show, we talked about whiskey a bit. And often I found myself explaining bits about how whiskey was made to sort of understand why I selected this particular bottle. And that has now evolved into, what was it, eight or nine parts where we talked through the entire Scottish whiskey making process. And, And Micah, you got to see the end of that last week. And so I asked on the Discord what we should do next. And folks asked for American bourbon. So I'm not going to do a nine-part series on American bourbon because (laughs) it's not that different. I will focus on the differences. I mean, in the end, for some reason, humans like to take grains and ferment them, distill them to raise them to solvent levels, and then suck flavors out of wood and drink it. In a, the American bourbon, of course, starts back with America first being uh, a, a set of colonies in the UK uh, because it grew a lot of corn. And generally speaking, you only make alcohol when you have enough to eat. And so you have food, you need, you have grain left over to store. And before it goes bad, you distill it because it's a way to store it for longer. And it's kind of fun. But the modern American bourbon really starts in 1964 when Congress passes a law declaring bourbon whiskey a distinctive product of the United States. And the federal standards of identity of a distilled spirit, because there is such a thing, (laughs) specified what an American bourbon was. And it was to be a grain mixture that was at least 51% corn that would be distilled no higher than 80% alcohol and then would be aged in new charred American oak barrels. The distillate putting being put into the barrel can be no higher than 62.5%. And we talked about this when we were talking about barreling on the whiskey, on the Scottish whiskey side, that much higher than that, and you start to pull bad flavors out of the wood. Uh, so it makes sense that they came in that number, although the Scots use 63.5 because they're often using used bourbon barrels and they still want to pull some flavors from those. If it's spent two years, it has to be aged in barrels. It needs to be a minimum of two years. At two years, it can be called what's called straight bourbon. Most bourbon is aged longer than that. If it's aged less than four years, you're required to put an age statement on it. In other words, the youngest thing in the barrel uh, in the bottle has to be on the label. After four years, you're not required to do that. And so the fact that if you think about most bourbons, you've never seen an age statement on them. They're typically five to six years old. That's the normal range of aging in Kentucky, in Kentucky conditions. It doesn't have to be made in Kentucky, but Kentucky has ideal conditions for it, which are different from Scotland. They have similar water in the sense that there's lots of limestone in Kentucky, which makes the water very soft. But Kentucky is quite a bit drier and quite a bit hotter in the summer and colder in the winters. You know, Scotland is a very humid, temperature consistent place. So its process of aging are different, which is why you rarely see very old aged bourbons. It's very difficult to keep uh, the barrels uh, in range. 
it's more often it's warm enough that they actually lose water and the alcohol level goes up. But that's mostly because it's low humidity is so low. Uh, other rules around bourbon whiskey, uh, it has to be made in the U.S. to be called bourbon. Uh, no filtration steps at all. I'm looking at you, Jack Daniels. You're not allowed to be called bourbon because you do carbon filtration. Not that it's a bad thing, just those are the rules. Also, no caramel coloring and only water for dilution. So let's talk about how this is different from Scottish whiskey. The first and biggest thing is a mixture of grains or what's known as the mash bill. So a mash bill is basically the recipe of what kind of grains are you going to use to make your whiskey. And because of the rules, it's going to be corn, first and foremost, at least half corn, typically 67, even as high as 80%. Almost all bourbons, and there are a few exceptions, will have a certain amount of malted barley in it, between 5 and 15%. And that's because it provides amylase, which helps to digest the, uh, in the fermentation process, the compounds that will tend to make methanol, the stuff that makes you go blind. You want ethanol, as little methanol as possible. And then there'll be a flavor grain, a grain that'll sit in between those two, between the corn and the barley, uh, often rye, sometimes wheat. So most of the whiskey, most of the bourbons you know of, like your Buffalo Traces, Bullets, and so forth, are what they call high rye bourbons. They have 10 to 20% of their content is rye. And then there's a few high wheat bourbons, not as many. I think the best known of them would be Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark is 70% corn, 14% barley, 16% red winter wheat. But also Blanton's, Weller, the famous Pappy Van Winkle, uh, all high wheat bourbons. Uh, the, uh, the other interesting step, because now you have a multiple grains, is how you treat the grains in preparation for fermentation. So we're used to malting barley because malting barley really means germinating it getting it ready to actually grow to be a plant and then killing it before it can really live. So two or three days in water, typically a little bit of churning up until it turns a bit green. And that's actually converting a lot of those long change carbohydrates into sugars, which we can then extract to make our, our, uh, our initial stage of beer. But it doesn't work the same way for corn and for rye, they don't tend to make short chain sugars right off the bat. So there's a different extraction process and it's called grain cooking. And essentially imagine a gigantic pressure cooker, although the pressures are relatively low. Different grains uh, are cooked, each grain is cooked separately. For production purposes, because we're usually using continuous column stills, we want to keep this process going all of the time. They keep the cooking time down to between 25 and 30 minutes, but they vary the temperature and the pressure depending on the grain. So corn goes at the hottest, about 220 degrees Fahrenheit is 114 Celsius. For about a half hour, they typically use a little extra pressure on corn because it's the hardest to extract from. It's a very robust grain. But that cooking process helps to break the hulls down a bit, start the sugar conversion process. Rye is a little bit cooler, 170 Fahrenheit, 77 degrees Celsius. And barley, which is already malted, is the lowest at 150 degrees, 66 degrees Celsius. So each of those grains are handled separately. Uh, they're done in water in these pressure cookers. And then they're combined into a mash barrel. Uh, uh, typically directly into fermentation and then they're cooled they're cooled down so they don't kill the yeast. 
where in Scotland, yeasts are very consistent. There's basically been strict rules around which yeast to use. In America, the use vary wildly. There also tend to be trade secrets. Uh, in the early, the pre-prohibition days, and believe me, the stories about whiskey before and after prohibition are great. I think we'll end up doing a whole thing on that at some point if we want to keep talking about this stuff. <laughs> Uh, each of these distilleries have basically developed their own and maintained their own yeast. They have little yeast banks, they have growing facilities, and so on. And uh, for some brands, different editions of their bourbon will actually use their different yeast strains. Normally, a fermenter are gigantic tanks. They're usually made of wood, sometimes oak, sometimes cypress. And they operate around 77 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 25 to 30 degrees Celsius. You'll note I'm using all the measurements of the oppressors first because we are talking America. Uh, uh, they'll also add sour mash to the 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 tank for fermentation. We'll talk more about sour mash as we go along, but it's basically the leftovers from previous distillations are put into it. You'll see the word sour mash on most bottles. It's a normal thing. There is such a thing as sweet mash. If we were going to make a, a bourbon without any of the, the, uh, the stillage from previous distillations, that would be a sweet mash, but it's not commonly done. Um, the goal is to ferment essentially a strong beer, a kind of what they call distiller's beer, 9 to 11% of alcohol, depending on the particular distiller and the particular yeast. Uh, ferments run about three to four days long. Um, the fermentation process, of course, is warm, and you don't want things to get too hot. So those uh, tanks can only be so big. If they get too hot, it'll kill the yeast. Anything about, about 104 degrees is going to start killing off yeast. In some cases, some distilleries will actually cool their fermenters. They run coils of stainless steel piping in the tanks to try and keep the temperature down. But there are limits. Uh, as that fermentation reaches the alcohol level they expect, they will drain it into a beer tank. These beer tanks tend to be bigger than the fermentation tanks because they are then going to feed it directly into a still and it's a continuous process. So when the, the, the beer tanks, which are stainless steel, get down to about one third, there's enough room typically to make a full drop of a fermentation tank into it and keep the process running. I and mean, I give you a sense that there's an urgency here of uh, continuous flow for most of these bourbon distilleries. The, um, and that takes us to distillation. And the vast majority of bourbon distilleries use column stills. Now, a column still is basically a big metal tube, almost always stainless steel, and they're quite large, uh, 15 to as high as 60 feet tall. Uh, and somewhere between uh, two to uh, six feet wide. They're big. I've, I've seen a bunch of them. Um, the larger they are, the higher their level of distillation. And so depending on the way you want to make your bourbon, you'll want a bigger column still or a smaller one. We've talked about column stills a bit in the in this the Scottish uh, series. Not that the column stills are rarely used in, in Scottish distillery. It's always pot stills, which are batch-based. You load them, you run them, you clean them, you run them again, you do it again. In column stills, the beer is basically being dropped into the top of the still. And inside 
inside these columns are a series of plates, and the plates have holes in them. The holes have lips, so the beer has to build up a bit on each plate before it can drip down to the next one. Those holes also allow alcohol to evaporate out, and it's taken out the top of the column still. So beer goes in at the top and works its way down, and alcohol evaporates and heads back up. This whole process happens at relatively low temperatures. The bottom of the column will be the hottest. It's near boiling, somewhere between 200, 210 degrees Fahrenheit. And the top of the column is more like 170 to 185. Uh, the small stills typically will distill up to about 60% ABV. Remember, you're not allowed to go over 80%, so the biggest stills tune themselves to go to about 80%. If you go higher than that, you're not allowed to call yourself bourbon. Now you're getting ready to make vodka, essentially. Right? Vodkas are often distilled to 93 95%. So this is a continuous process. You're always able to fear, feed beer into the bottom, uh, into the top, alcohol coming out of the top, bottom. But you do build up stillage in the bottom. This is leftover bits of grain, uh, or, or leftover bits of the ferment, proteins, fats, things like that. Lots of water, and so that is drained off and shipped to stillage tanks where it will be prepped to be sour mash. Uh, in every case, after you come out of the stainless steel column still, you need to be exposed to copper. We talked about this in the, in the Scottish stage as well, where you need to take certain bad flavor compounds out of the distillate, typically sulfurs, which come from the barley and from corn. And so if you're not actually using a pot still, and some distilleries do, you'll use a thing called a doubler. And a doubler is essentially a reflux flow. It's got a sort of dome shape to it. And as the alcohol evaporates up, it hits the walls and falls back down. And some of it will escape up the top. And in that process has this catalytic reaction that removes those poor flavors from the distillate. And then it can head over to the cool, into the condensers. So, in the case of like a distillery like Maker's Mark, and we've talked about Maker's Mark before, they use a column still that raises it to about 60%. And I've had a chance to sample that 60% in its particular flavor. And he literally took it directly from the still as it was running. And I'm like, aren't you afraid of contamination? No, wait, it's pure alcohol. It's gonna, what, you know, what would you sterilize it with? And then running right beside it is the pot still, which raises it from 60% to about 73%. And it does it in a much slower batch process. So they have several of these pot stills and we get to taste it again. And you saw this really remarkable flavor change that the sort of oily bitterness that came out of the column still is removed by the pot still, that copper reactions as well as the reflux process. But either way, this all now ends up heading over to the condensers to be cooled. In the meantime, we have this sidetrack where all that stillage is being shipped over to, shower, to the stillage tanks. Now, this stillage is a bit sour, which really means it's acidic, knowing, recognizing that a pH of 7 is completely neutral. Uh, yeast doesn't actually like to be in a pH environment of 7. They'd rather be in a pH environment of 5.4 to 5.8. It likes a little acidity. It runs, it operates faster, generates carbon dioxide, converts to alcohol, and so forth. And so rather than spend money to lower the pH level in the, in the fermentation tanks, you take this sour mash and you treat it, you get it to the right acidity level, and then you put it back into the fermentation tanks to sour the tanks. That is sour mash. It's only a little bit, somewhere between 5 and 10% depending on the distillery. 
but it's a mechanism which they use as diligent goes on. All of the rest of the leftovers are dried and turned into animal feed, and then other souls are given away. All right. We're coming out of the condensers. We've cooled this liquid that's somewhere between 75 and 80% alcohol. And uh, we turn it back, we get it back into a liquid. It's often tasted at this point, not at that jet fuel volume. They'll usually cut it with water, get down to about 20% and check its grain flavors and so forth. At this point, you really are just tasting the grain. There's no color to it. It's completely clear. And if you're happy with it at that point, sometimes there's sour notes and so forth that might ruin a batch, which does happen, you're ready for barreling. So the barreling process, this is the bourbon process, with one of the things that makes bourbon distinct. Uh, always American white oak barrels. They are 53 U.S. gallons, which is what used to be called a Queen Allen gallon, but nobody talks about that anymore. That comes out to about 200 liters. There are local cooperages all over the different whiskey-making areas, and they make the barrels out of this white oak. Uh, all oaks are toasted. So as the barrel is assembled, the staves are put into a base. The initial set of bands are put on and the bottom is put on. And before the upper part of the barrel is contracted to complete its shape and a top put on, they'll do two stages of firing. The first stage is called a toasting stage. So this is lower temperature for a longer time. And it actually causes uh, wood sugars, turns the wood red. Uh, quite a, a, quite a bit of color from it. It's almost car like caramel. And then the second firing is with much higher heat and they'll char the inside of the barrels. Every distillery and every brand has their own recipe for how barrels should be done. Uh, there's lots of variations in that. Sometimes the char is very strong. Sometimes it's lighter. And then the barrel is finished assembly and it's shipped off uh, to the distillery where they can be begin their aging process. So barrels are loaded the traditional way. They're typically stored horizontally in rack rooms. Different distilleries have different styles of rack rooms. The most traditional one looks very much like a warehouse. It has multiple floors on it, sometimes even an elevator, and they lay the barrels horizontally in racks. Kentucky is, again, both hotter in the summertime, cooler in the wintertime, and low humidity. So aging is very challenging. Sometimes you lose alcohol. Sometimes you lose water, depending on the conditions. And if you go above 80%, you can't sell it as bourbon. And if you go below 40%, you can't sell it as bourbon. So you're playing a game. Um, many distillers rotate barrels. In fact, uh, in Maker's Mark was famous for having these, or they used to be more popular now, but Maker's Mark has this very famous racking system where they can take the bottom barrel out and have the other barrels slide down. And so every six months or so, depending on the season, you have a rotation of where the barrels are taking heat or being in more modern environments and so forth. There are also some that actually cool, do air circulation or provide other temperature management for the barrel barrel rooms to try and get those barrels to go longer. If you can, again, most bourbons you don't find very old. The typical age is five to six years. Where you find older bourbons, you'll find their barrel rooms are often made of stone, partially underground, all mechanisms to slow the aging process. You can spend more time in wood without altering the alcohol level near as much. Bottling process is basically the same. Once it's reached a point where they're happy with the aging, a master distiller pulls barrels for a given lot. Uh, they, they sample them, test, uh, taste test them. Then they'll use the same combining, very similar combining techniques, add water to it to re reduce it to its typical proof levels, which are 45 to 47%. Again, a, a good level for minimizing flocculation. You remember that? I remember that word. 
<laughs> not, that they, not that the Americans do any chill filtration ever. So they do that primarily by keeping their alcohol level a bit higher. And that brings us to our whiskey of the week, which is Woodford Reserve. Um, Woodford Reserve is very well priced, about $35 for a, bo- a 750 bill bottle or 26 ounce bottle. The history of the site for Woodward Reserve has been many different distilleries over the years. Again, Prohibition had a huge impact on it. Its current owner is a company called Brown Foreman. There are, they also owned Old Forester, Cooper's Craft, and Jack Daniels. The mash bill in their standard uh, Woodford edition is 72% corn, 18% rye, 10% barley. They ferment in 7,500-gallon cypress fats. They run about a five- to seven-day fermentation. They use very little sour mash, typically as low as 1%, 1 or 2% as all. And unlike virtually any other distillery in the U.S., they use only pot stills and they triple pot still distill. So they have uh, a 2,500-gallon beer still. That's the large one, which typically will raise your 9% beer up to 40%. Then they have a low wine still, which is about 1,650 gallons. That takes it to 55%. And then their high wine or spirit still, that raises it up to about 78%. Then they'll cut it with water to 55% and barrel it typically for five to six years in a water cooled and water heated rack house. So they take water out of the river all of the time. And if they need cooling, they pump that cold water through the pipes in their rack houses. And in the wintertime, when it gets awfully cold, they actually have a little boiler and they'll heat water up and pump it through the rack houses to keep the temperature more stable. That's what makes Woodford distinct. It's a triple distilled uh, um, rye mash. It's quite a mild, easy drinking, uh, kind of whiskey one. I recommend, I usually have on my shelf. If you like bourbon, you'll like this one. Hasn't got a lot of punch to it. Uh, but it's nicely made and reasonably priced. Yeah. I've actually seen that in stores <laughs> just, uh, you know, right there on the shelf. Not hard to find. Yeah. yeah, not a not a rare. I mean, there are incredibly rare bourbons. I have pursued a few unicorns over the years, like Parker's Family Select, which only makes a few hundred bottles of that edition any given year. Uh, if you want to go nuts on bourbon, you can. But there are plenty of of reasonably priced uh, bourbons you can get that drink very nicely. Yep, I agree. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Windows Weekly. If you would like to watch the show uh, as we record it live around about Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, you should tune in by going to twit.tv slash live. There you will see options to stream the show on uh, lots of different places. Twitch, YouTube Live. uh, Basically, we're streaming in as many places as we can so you uh, can watch it as we record. Uh, The best way to get the show, though, is by subscribing to or following the show, which you can do by going to twit.tv slash WW. When you head to that link, you will see the option to subscribe to audio or subscribe to video, your uh, version of choice across a bunch of different platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, um, Pocket Casts. We try to be in all the places. So that way, no matter what podcast application you're using, you can get the show because at the very uh, heart of this, it's an RSS feed. So even if you're using some strange player we haven't ever heard of, you could probably pop that RSS feed in there and get the show uh, as soon as it's done being edited together. Uh, I also want to mention Club Twit right quick at twit.tv slash club twit. Consider joining the club starting at $7 a month or $84 a year. When you join the club, you get several 
great perks. First, you get access to every single Twitch show with no ads. You also get access to a special Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else behind the scenes, before the show, after the show, all sorts of great stuff there. And you gain access to the Club Twit Discord. It is a fun place to go to chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. Um, along with those great perks, you also are going to get some great Club Twit exclusive shows. There's the Untitled Linux Show, which is a show all about Linux. Uh, there's also Paul Therott's Hands on Windows program with, yes, this Paul Therott, um, who is covering all sorts, <laughs> all sorts of tips and tricks for <laughs> Windows to help you uh, make sure you're making the most of that machine you have. Um, Hands on Mac, if for some reason you're listening to this show and you want uh, to learn more about Apple, then you could head to that uh, show. Nobody's perfect. No, yeah, okay. Pobody's perfect. Uh, so you can check that out. That's a show that I host. And last but not, excuse me, last but not least, you can tell how excited I was. Um, we have Scott Wilkinson, who has relaunched Home Theater Geeks. So if you are all about that home theater and want to make sure that you know you've got the the latest and greatest, or at least that you've got your settings as they should be. Check out Home Theater Geeks, all part of Club Twit at twit.tv slash club twit. Please consider joining. All right, Paul Therott of Therott.com. Anything you want to pitch this week? Uh, boy, okay. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> I am on Twitter, as you know. Everything everything I'm on is my last name, so Therott at Therott, T-H-U-R-R-O-T-T. Um, best way you guys could support me, if you'd like to, is to buy one of my books, uh, the Windows 11 Field Guide and Windows Everywhere are both available on LeanPub. And uh, the Windows Everywhere book is available on the Kindle on Amazon. Nice. All right. Mm-hmm. And Richard Campbell, uh, it is your turn for your pitch. I'm at Richard at darkroom.com. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I thought I th- clearly this thing's on a timer. So I thought in between each break, I'd reset the timer. It didn't work. Oh. So. At the dark room. But yeah, you find me at runasradio.com. Uh, I'm also at uh, donnerrocks.com, uh, Rich Campbell on Twitter, and uh, Rich Campbell at mastodon.social if you have to wander over there. Uh, but always have fun hanging out on Discord with the folks. So you'll, you'll see me around. Awesome. You can find me at Micah Sargent on many a social media network or head to chihuahua.coffee, C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Um, Please join us again next week for another episode of Windows Weekly because your favorite guy, Leo Laporte, will be back uh, next week. Oh, is he coming back? It's, I feel uh, like he moved I like to Europe the new or something. format. Micah, we need to keep you. <laughs> well, that's very kind. I have enjoyed this time that we've spent together, and I'm, I will be back again in the future. But um, I think Leo is, is ready to um, join Paul and groaning at about a few hmm. Windows changes. So. I'm ready to go to Europe and join him. Yeah, Maybe there you we go. Can just switch the format up again. <laughs> <laughs> Where will Paul be coming from this week? Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Windows Weekly, and they will see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> 
Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, Editor-in-Chief of Ad Astra Magazine, and each week I join with my co-host to bring you This Week in Space, the latest and greatest news from the final frontier. We talk to NASA chiefs, space scientists, engineers, educators, and artists, and sometimes we just shoot the breeze over what's hot and what's not in space, books, and TV. And we do it all for you, our fellow true believers. So whether you're an armchair adventurer or waiting for your turn to grab a slot in Elon's Mars rocket, join us on This Week in Space and be part of the greatest adventure of all time. <laughs> 